With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. And everybody should master Neely Fuller's, you know, behavior code. Stop name-calling, stop gossiping. Stop squabbling, stop cursing, stop being discourteous, stop being disrespectful to one another. Stop stealing from one another, stop robbing one another, stop fighting one another, and stop killing one another. And the ones that I add to it, stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap with this legalization of marijuana. So everybody, every black person can be unemployed and then they can sit in their corner and get high on marijuana with whatever they decide to put in it. And people won't be asking for jobs and being determined that they're going to get jobs and going to get an education. No, everybody can start getting high on marijuana because somebody said it's medicinal and it's legal. What about so we better beware. What about the people who say the legalization of marijuana is fighting against racism because you have so many black people who are unjustly incarcerated as a result of racist enforcement of these drug laws. So this would be a good thing and it would keep black people out of greater confinement. No, we can we can do it by stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, if I'm not using drugs, then I can't be incarcerated for drugs. And I see so many males, young males in my practice who would become psychotic, almost never to return to normal from marijuana use because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how it's been genetically altered. 
again, everything has to be put in the context of a power dynamic system of racism and white supremacy. That's one thing the president spoke of, looking at behavior in context. Now, whether he actually meant context, as I said, I say the context is a system of racism and white supremacy. That's the only way we're going to understand any aspect of our behavior, the power context in which the behavior occurs. Mm. Just for our listeners, because I think that's real important, uh, I had only heard a few people who were saying, who had suspicion about this sudden push to legalize marijuana and saying, I don't think that this is being done with the best intentions for black people. Uh, you're, are you saying that you you think that this could be something to further erode black people's will and ability to replace white supremacy with justice? So we're just all... Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. See, they drug test to deny you employment. And so now I'm going to tell you, you can get all the marijuana you want. See, we have to say, well, this is interesting. They're legalizing marijuana use, and they're closing schools. They're legalizing marijuana use, but they are making it difficult for black people to vote. They're legalizing marijuana but they are tightening up on affirmative action. They're legalizing marijuana, but they're making it more difficult to prove discrimination in employment. So again, uh, see, understanding system, and this is how come our brains push black people to say, hey, what's happening? That It's not an idle question. The brain is saying, you don't really understand what's going on. Keep asking, what's happening? What's happening? Maybe somebody will be able to tell you. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, March 9th, 2016. So I have been told. Uh, woo, we just did our seven year anniversary uh, here at the Cows, and uh, I think our caller in Michigan, she asked, uh, Why is this program named Context of White Supremacy? That is sterling illustration right there from Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, that sound clip, that's from uh, 2013, uh, her 21st visit to the cows out of 31. Uh, and just to timestamp it, that is seven days after the conclusion of the Trayvon Martin murder trial uh, when she was on the program. I hadn't thought of it at the time. However, seven days from the Trayvon Martin murder trial, Trayvon Martin's alleged cannabis use was a significant factor in the trial, if I do remember, at least in the perception and how people talked about what happened, uh, dare I say, even justifying George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin. My memory might be faulty, though. 
Uh, the broadcast today, I said uh, at the beginning of the year that certainly we were going to uh, take due diligence uh, to remember the monumental uh, counter-racist effort of third-generation physician and author Dr. Frances Cress-Welsing. Uh, thankfully, she was on the program many times. Uh, and also, as I've said consistently, uh, she left a massive, um, astronomical amount of work uh, for us to continue to study uh, and hone our understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, uh, and just concepts, information to help us solve this problem. That is what she would want us to do, I think. Uh, she also left a lot of students, uh, folks who invested a good bit of time and energy uh, studying with Dr. Welsing, uh, being fortunate enough to attend uh, her institute, the Crest Welsing Institute in Washington, D.C., on the Coward, uh, on the campus of Howard University. Uh, a lot of folks were able to attend, uh, some for many years, uh, to just soak up uh, as much content uh, as possible. Uh, and we thought it would be uh, fantastic. Actually, one of our listeners uh, has been super, help uh, super helpful, uh, same listener who pitched in and helped us get uh, Dr. Welsing's sister, uh, Lauren Cress Love, on the program earlier this year, who just had uh, a wealth. I mean, it was astronomical to just be able to talk to her and get more background information about Dr. Welsing's family and how she got to this point. It was just a real uh, pleasure uh, to listen to her. I would encourage folks to go back and listen to the archives. Uh, but he also thought it would be great to get one of her students on the program as well. Uh, ironically, uh, I already knew of this person's work uh, before the cows even existed. I used to uh, spend a good chunk of time listening to Mr. Edward Williams' counter-racism, counter-racism.org, uh, his counter-racism radio network. I would listen. They had a lot of archives with Mr. Fuller, Dr. Welsing. And he played an interview uh, with our guest this evening, uh, an interview that she did with the admitted racist, admitted white supremacist, Farrell Winfrey, uh, from some years ago. And I listened to that and was like, wow, I've got to get uh, this Farrell Winfrey uh, on our program. If we, get, if we get a broadcast going, I would enjoy having her as a guest on the program to ask a few questions uh, and to ask, you know, in a similar serious manner uh, as our guest on the program for this evening did. She was very serious, right to the point. I think uh, she had even worked with uh, Dr. Welsing and some others to uh, really precision craft some great questions. I would encourage folks to check it out. It's actually linked in the description uh, for the program this evening if folks want to take a listen. But I heard her in the archives participating in various counter-racist talks uh, and just thought, wow, it'll be great to have her on the program to give her thoughts, impressions of Dr. Welsing's work uh, and some of her own views on the system of white supremacy. Uh, joining us live, uh, one of Dr. Welsing's uh, students, long-running students at the Welsing Institute, uh, Miss Sabrina Johnson. Uh, Miss Johnson, are you with us? Yes, yes. Peaceful greetings to you. Greetings. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Wednesday evening. A uh, real pleasure to have you uh, speak with us this evening. Uh, for our listeners, this might be their first time uh, hearing from you, Sabrina. Uh, anything that you think would be significant for folks to know about who you are, the work that you do? Um, sure. I would characterize myself. Um, well, first of all, can you hear me well? You are crystal. Okay, great. I would characterize myself as a longtime devoted student of Dr. Welsing, um, and I feel 
so grateful that I had the opportunity to walk with her, so to speak, for so long and so closely. Um, I think that my own upbringing, my own personal constitution, um, the experiences that I had in, through my childhood and into my young adulthood kind of made me ripe to really latch on to her analysis and teachings. Um, so um, I think that that explains that why I've, I've been so, um, you know, just closely in tuned with countering racism and her analysis of what is the motivating driver, driving factor for the behaviors that we see consistently um, by people who classify themselves as white all over the world. Right on. You uh, are a black female, for folks who have not seen you? Correct. Right on. Uh, this program, The Cows, Context of White Supremacy, uh, used the terms racism, and white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white, who are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Absolutely, the system exists, and I would say I would not characterize that definition as inaccurate. I would say not quite comprehensively complete. Anything you would add, or if you want to give us your own definition? Well, well, I, I think that if we look to Dr. Welsing's functional definition, um, it is comprehensive because it addresses the what, the who, the when, the where, and the why uh, of the system. And because of our victimization over generations and generations and generations, there's so much in us that serves as a barrier and an obstacle from even accepting the truth of, of the reality that we um, exist within. Because of that, um, I, I, I think that a full, comprehensive definition that hits all of those critical um, points is is best. It's 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 that locks it up. You know, it's 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 unrefuted, as is her crest theory of uh, color confrontation. It's it's just so complete and correct and accurate and solid. I mean, who can who can go behind that uh, with an effective challenge? You can't, and that's what counter-racist codification is is really all about. For sure, I think she emphasized that pretty consistently uh, when she would read her total definition, and I think she had a cash mm -hmm. reward if someone could come behind and give a uh, better definition uh, for racism, white supremacy. To my knowledge, no one ever stepped forward to claim uh, their cash reward for having a uh, more thorough definition for racism, white supremacy. Um, right, right. And that's something that, you know, I've been um, doing in all of the, the, the tributes or the remarks um, concerning um, sort of this, this 
this new reality that we're adjusting ourselves to in terms of her um, physical absence, mm-hmm. um, but to always read very precisely her definition so that there's clarity, and to also, you know, make make a correction that lots and lots and lots and lots of people always make. They say racism and white supremacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which indicates a lack of understanding of what the system of white supremacy is, of what racism is, because they are one and the same. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of quick to point that out in a respectful way. Right on, definitely. That is uh, hugely important. Just that little conjunction uh, has a big impact uh, when racism, white supremacy are not equated. Uh, they are, as you said, one and the same. Did you want to read Dr. Welsing's uh, definition, if you have it on hand, that just to make sure everybody is uh, clear uh, about what she stated? Sure. Okay. Functional definition of racism equals white supremacy equals apartheid. Racism, white supremacy, is the local and global power system and dynamic structured and maintained by persons who classify themselves as white, whether consciously or subconsciously determined, which consists of patterns of perception, logic, symbol formation, thought, speech, action, and emotional response as conducted simultaneously in all areas of people activity, economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war for the ultimate purpose of white genetic survival and to prevent white genetic annihilation on planet Earth, a planet upon which the vast and overwhelming majority of people are classified as non-white, black, brown, red, and yellow, by white-skinned people. And all of the non-white people are genetically dominant in terms of skin coloration compared to the genetic recessive white-skinned people. Um, And let me just add a couple of uh, other uh, paragraphs of further context that uh, Dr. Welsing shared um, concerning that definition. The system of racism, white supremacy, utilizes deceit and violence, inclusive of chemical warfare, biological warfare, and psychological warfare. Indeed, any means necessary to achieve its ultimate goal objective of white genetic survival and to prevent white genetic annihilation on planet Earth. In the existing system of racism, white supremacy, when the term is undefined, and poorly understood, there is general confusion and chaos on the part of the victims of that system, local, national, and global. It then becomes impossible for the victims of racism, white supremacy, to effectively counter the global system of racism, white supremacy. The African enslavement, imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, fascism, etc., are all dimensions and aspects of the system of racism, white supremacy. So um, she even gave some further context to um, your, your leading question about uh, the definition 
of racism, white supremacy. For sure. The cows. What, uh, just so listeners have a better grasp, you said that you felt like your experiences as a black female in this context prior to knowing about Dr. Welsing's work, her theory of white genetic annihilation, that your life experience prepared you to receive Dr. Welsing's teaching. Just can you kind of give us an, an idea of what that experience was like? Mm, sure. I grew up in a rather small town in South Carolina. And um, I do recall that my older sister used to call me militant before I even knew what the word meant. So there was, I guess, always a little something there. But I, 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 I remember specific experiences. I remember being in fifth grade and learning about uh, Egyptians. And nobody told me this, and it certainly wasn't um, explained, or uh, nor had I seen images. But somehow, I, I just knew that they were black. I just I, I, I have that memory in my in my head. Um, I let's see, there were I think six black students, including myself, my sister, and my cousin, um, at the um, elementary school and went to um, K through sixth grade. So I had a lot of interaction with um, white students and. All of the teachers were white. So through that experience, I got, you know, a significant dose of um, victimization <laughs> along the way. Fortunately, um, I had a strong uh, home setting uh, with parents who, um, you know, could, could secure me emotionally and, and all of that. So I loved learning, and I, I did well academically. Um, but there are all, all, always these things that popped up. You know, my, my mother would share her experiences, you know, going to the bank and always um, the attempts to cheat her just consistently. Like every week something would happen. Things would happen when you go to the store. Things would happen on the job with my father, et cetera, et cetera. So I knew things were... Um, out of out of balance in in many ways, and then as an adolescent, um, the one event that I think had more impact on me than any anything in my life was that a classmate's father was lynched, and this was the late seventies, and um, there was rumor. Of, of course, the classic rumors, him and some white woman, but um, nothing was nothing was done uh, in my from my vantage point. Um, there wasn't a, a full thorough investigation. It's my understanding that the wooded area where he his body was found hanging from a tree was was bulldozed before there was the collection of evidence and all of that. And, you know, I, I recall being extraordinarily um, angry and confused, but also it was, it was um, a moment of truth for me. Um, I, I determined or concluded in my mind right then that, wow, nobody really can 
protect anyone else. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on this path of life myself. And so, um, I, I kind of view life from a vantage point of, you know, being very self-reliant and, um, knowing that I need to analyze things for myself, understand things for myself and just, um, not rely on, on someone else, anyone else, including, you know, parents, leadership, authorities, etc. So, um, yeah, that was a sort of a monumental um, life experience. And so I was always asking, um, you know, why? Because all of these situations, I mean, there, there are countless situations that I could... <laughs> Um, name growing up in a small town in South Carolina and then um, going away to college in Baltimore and then um, living in the Boston area for a number of years um, soon after graduating from college. So certainly that experience in the Boston area, which I call the Mississippi of the North, um, you know, was had, had a big impact also, and I happened to be in the Boston area when, where the when the Charles Stewart um, case happened. And for folks who aren't aware, there's a white couple um, leaving a childbirth class. Uh, the husband's driving, the wife was seated next to him. She was seven months pregnant. And um, the report um, that, that was released was that a black assailant um, broke into their car as they were uh, at a, a red light in a, a black section, quote-unquote black section of Boston, and shot the woman, um, the pregnant white woman, and then also shot the, the husband in the abdomen. Um, the white woman was, um, was killed. She was shot in the, in the face. And so, of course, uh, all hell broke loose because, you know, there was a description of the assailant. You know, he was wearing, of course, um, dark jogging clothing and you know, he was dark-skinned and all that sort of stuff. But basically, every black male was was harassed, rounded up. Many were um, falsely, uh, of course, accused and arrested and all of that. It, and it didn't matter how, how far away they were from the uh, physical description of the uh, alleged assailant. But what had really actually happened was this um, white man had shot his own seven-month-pregnant wife uh, in the face as she sat next to him in the car as they were leaving a childbirthing class. Then he had, to, to make the story believable, um, shot himself um, in the abdomen. Of course, he missed uh, any vital organs and had his brother um, meet him. Um, it was prearranged 
take the gun, you know, take some jewelry to make it seem like it was a robbery and that sort of thing. And yeah, Boston, the, the people who classified themselves as white in Boston really showed who they were um, in that aftermath. And soon um, the story seemed to unravel um, only after they had imprisoned uh, a suspect and, you know, totally trashed his reputation. They had broken into even his mother's apartment and ransacked it, um, quote-unquote, looking for evidence. And he wasn't even the first suspect who was um, arrested. But the whole thing was a fabrication. And um, when they honed in on um, the true assailant, he jumped off a bridge and killed himself. Um, so um, that's just one um, of the significant milestones in the, in the Boston history of race relations. Um, but that certainly had a, a big impact, and being there in the thick of it um, was quite interesting. This other uh, thing happened um, months after that. I was in a, a jazz lounge, and um, there were two white males who appeared to be businessmen um, sitting nearby, and they were talking about the case and reflecting on it. And one of them said, you know, how tragic that was for the young wife. I think she was like 28 or 29, something like that. And this other uh, of these two white businessmen <laughs> said, well, she was 28 and a lawyer, so you know she was a bitch. And I was like, wow, these people are really, 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 really super-duper cold. Cold-blooded. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Tackiness abounds. Um, every time South Carolina... Yeah. South Carolina pops up now. I'm uh, obligated to uh, mention Ben Tillman's name. He's the first name that pops to mind when I think of South Carolina. I guess eventually it'll be placed, replaced with Dylan uh, Storm Roof. But for now, it's Ben Tillman. And uh, the threat of Negro domination hangs over us like the sword of Damocles. Uh, for folks who remember us reading, that was his, one of his classic lines out of many former governors of South Carolina. Um, the... Uh, just all of those anecdotes, I mean, I think that right there, I think Dr. Welsing, when she says being able to connect the dots to understanding what yeah. happened to your friend uh, or this black male who was lynched in high school, what happened to him, uh, what happened with the situation in Boston uh, with Charles Stewart, even being able to blame a black person and it being believed immediately and the consequences for black people on the whole in that area, uh, I think Dr. Welsing, when she talks about racism, white supremacy, it's moving beyond seeing each of these as just uh, an anomaly. This is just uh, a, an acute incident and, oh, this is bad for that one day. Understanding, no, this is a part of a greater context of why things happen on the planet and the power dynamic between white people, non-white people. Um, I guess, what, at what point did you bump into Dr. Welsing's work, and was it, was it her book, or were you actually seeing her either in person or videos or, what, or hearing her, I guess, as well? Yeah, and that's a, a question that I've asked myself because um, 
they were all sort of around this, the very same time, very soon after um, the ISIS papers um, were published, um, and maybe before they uh, before it got out widely in, in terms of wide circulation. Um, I attended um, the National Black Holistic Retreat, which was um, a set of experiences that Brother Haki Mabuti, who is um, the founder of Third World Press, who published the ISIS papers, he and a number of other brothers had um, established these um, retreats uh, to deal with the, the, the whole black person, meaning dealing with the um, cultural, historical, male-female um, relationships, um, nutrition, health, and dietary imperatives, all of that within a, um, sort of a, a, a retreat um, setting um, for a long weekend. And I had attended one of those, and the ISIS papers um, was, you know, newly minted, but I think I, I had actually heard her um, at a lecture, you know, prior to actually um, putting my hands on the book. And so, yeah, those happened in, in close proximity. And um, after that, it was like, wow, wow, wow. So it was um, life-changing to really get an understanding of why you know, what was really driving it. Hmm. Did it change when you got this information and understanding the why of racism, white supremacy? Did it change uh, any of your behaviors or thought patterns in terms of how you functioned on the planet as a black female? Um, Yes, I think it, it, it cultivated more of a sense of, of patience and understanding um, with other um, black people and other non-white people, because you know, you, you, if you fully understand the context of something, then certainly, um, yeah, patience I think is a is a byproduct of that, and clarity on who is the enemy and who is not the enemy. So you 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 get clear, or I, I got much clearer that. You know, you, you spend your ammunition on the sheriff, not the deputy, because if you um, waste it on the deputy, the sheriff remains and will just deputize someone else, um, you know, in, in, in their place. And as long as the system of racism, white supremacy exists, there will be people who are classified as non-white um, who, quote-unquote, score points for the other team. Um, and that's a, just the, the nature of, of the system and the victimization. So there are probably times when you actually do have to defend yourself. However, um, keep in mind that uh, other non-white people are not our enemy. Very... Uh... Very important. I know that comes up a lot uh, on the program, uh, how we respond with uh, other victims of racism, where we don't agree with how they're responding to racism, white supremacy. Um, were you, I guess, in position to attend? I guess, when did you first start attending the actual Crest Welsing Institute in Washington, D.C.? Um, I 
Um, well, actually, I started attending before I actually moved <laughs> here. Um, I had friends in the area, and I used to visit frequently, and I would align my um, my visits uh, in accordance with the the institute. So um, that would have been like the late, I guess, the early nineties, maybe late late 80s yeah early 90s and um so over that time period i can count on one hand the times that i have been absent from the uh the institute meetings because of either being out of town there was one time that i was sick and um but yeah it's it's the institute itself the Cresswell Institute of Psychiatry and Social Research is a, it's just a, a phenomenal um, institute in that it's, it's so many things in one. Um, yes, it was uh, a lecture series. Uh, it was a learning lab, an actual laboratory um, where... <laughs> experiments are, are conducted where um, you could view the lessons playing out. Um, you could share uh, information because, of course, you know, Dr. Welsing was a voracious reader and she read multiple newspapers uh, every day, but you can't read everything, every newspaper, and you can't watch every commercial you can't see every billboard or um, read every magazine and see ads and photographs and that sort of thing. Excuse me. But when you have lots and lots of eyes and ears that are tuned to understanding the system and can pick up on things, people come to uh, to the Institute and share, um, whether it's something they see in a store <laughs> This was so interesting. Uh, a few months ago, of course, you know, under the system of white supremacy, guns loom large. Well, um, most people are probably familiar with cookie cutters, you know, the little molds that you can shape your, your dough or your whatever into, into, you know, certain shapes. So there was a pancake mold <laughs> in the shape of a gun. Wow. that someone had seen in the store and, and brought in <laughs> for quote-unquote show-and-tell, which is, you know, pretty pretty deep. Um, so, you know, the other thing we were able to observe, you know, Dr. Welsing in, in, in the Institute, it was really a lecture series, the second Thursday of the month from 7 to 10 officially, um, from September through June uh, every year, um, oftentimes even after we had to leave the, the space, um, we'd talk outside for another two, three hours or so um, because there was just so much to share about what's going on. Um, but it was also the opportunity to learn by um, Dr. Wilson's demonstration, patience, understanding, asking the right probative questions, and also 
how do we act when you're talking about a system of white supremacy and there are white people, uh, people who classify themselves as white in the, in the audience, in the setting, and seeing those interactions and that dynamic um, was just very, very, very instructive. Um, I'd say one of the things that I found most um, sort of satisfying is that in so many instances, um, people would bring in news articles or, or images or, or whatever, um, and they, in, in the most thorough way, demonstrated exactly what Dr. Wilson was uh, explaining in terms of especially subconscious thought and symbol formation, uh, you know, being able to decode what happens in the society, but all of the, the imagery and symbols that we see and don't understand and what their meaning um, could be. And it's, it, it was, it's just gratifying to see that um, over and over again. I, I recall one particular incident, uh, because it's, it's kind of unusual, in that one of the, um, Dr. Wilson would call them scouts, you know, people who are, uh, have a keen eye for uh, spotting some aspect of the dynamic of white supremacy um, being played out in, in, you know, whatever they're reading or watching, etc. So, um, and of course, Dr. Wilson didn't consume pornography, but um, uh, at one point a student brought in um, a cartoon image from one of the one of the porn magazines, and it was precisely um, how Dr. Welsing had had characterized um, ball games. There it was, you know, in in full visual context. You know exactly what she explained being in the subconscious mind. Um, you know, driving the the way ball games are played and what the, the various implements that are used, uh, particularly in football, um, you know, what, what they mean from a sort of a psychosexual uh, vantage point. So, hmm. what, what was this uh, exact? I know when she talks about football before she talks about the goalpost representing the uh, upright legs and the ball. Yes, yes. Okay, so what yes, was... Yes. So there was a um, there was a white man who was um, you know in a reclined position and he had this big um, brown of course football between his legs and then the white woman he was um, you know she she had on a jersey um, and her her legs were positioned just like the upright goalposts and they were. They were both white in the imagery, and it was just <laughs> uh, precisely accurate. Wow. <laughs> Dev- <laughs> Devastating illustration. A plus for Dr. Welsing on that one. Um, that is. Yes, indeed. I'm sorry, were you, did I cut you off? Um, you know, I, I did want to make a comment because in, in your opening um, segment, as you were playing uh, Dr. Welsing's um, 
discussion of legalization of marijuana, I, I just wanted to share this because it was probably about a year or maybe a year and a half before the legalization debate really reached its its peak in terms of really really being considered by the quote unquote mainstream that I saw in I just happened to see this article in, of all things, a AAA magazine, which, you know, the, the AAA auto um, service, um, whatever, AAA, I forgot what it stands for, Automotive Association. Um, and and uh, it was an article written by Pat Robertson, who is this, you know, ultra quote-unquote conservative, um, you know, white male. He heads the 700 Club, etc. And in this article, he was actually promoting legalization of marijuana. And, you know, I scratched my head. I rubbed my eyes. <laughs> I read the thing again. It's like, What? Wow, I mean this this you know lengthy column in in this magazine that to me was not even you know relevant in terms of subject matter, but you know it, it was a, a huge question mark and and I, I called a couple of friends of mine and said that and they were like, "Are you sure?" It, it was unbelievable, but then or or now looking back. Um, I, I see it makes sense because there's this effort to uh, push things in that direction. So I just wanted to, to share that. Um, you know, they're they're working twenty. The white supremacists are working not just twenty four seven and in three shifts, as Dr. Wilson would say, but <laughs> they're working twenty five eight. And so. Um, I think, you know, these strategies and tactics that they're using um, are, you know, well thought out, well in advance, and just kind of dropped out there, you know, in, in, at, at the right time. Absolutely. The, the reason that I played that segment at the beginning was I was talking to a listener, and I said... Uh, you, when I say you all, I mean I'm in Washington State, so it, uh, they have had legalization of cannabis since uh, 2012 when President Obama was reelected. It all went at the same time, legalization of cannabis. I think they had big legislation about, quote, unquote, gay rights, and Obama was reelected all at the same time. So they had a huge party uh, here in Seattle. And from that time, I said I do not think, because they've been saying for four years now that legalization, this is a big way we can work against racism. So many black people, the war on drugs, it's been horrible, and this will help keep black people out of greater confinement. This will be great uh, to go ahead and legalize. And I've been saying from what I've seen, even my speculation before it happened, and certainly now seeing how this has played out over four years, I was telling this listener, I said, man, you all have no idea what it's going to look like when you have a system of white supremacy and weed jelly beans and weed gummy bears. And the person laughed and they were like, ah, ha, ha. I mean, are you being serious, Gus? And I was like, yes, like you have no idea what this is going to look like 
uh, as they proceed, when you have weed gummy bears, weed uh, jelly beans, which are already here, uh, weed soda, weed burritos, like just the, all of this stuff. And hey, it's, this is legal. This is great. You can have a little fun. Like just no idea at all how this is going to uh, particularly impact non-white people once this you know, gets to be widely accepted and is beyond just Washington State and a few sort of places here and there. Uh, I know now Washington, D.C. is another spot where this has been legalized. Uh, the time that you've been there, how have you seen this evolve? And, and did Dr. Wells in comment on this? Uh, oh, sure. She's been sort of ringing the alarm bells for a long time uh, on this. Because, yes, it's it's not just weed, per se. It's These are... are you know, all kinds of, how is it that all of a sudden you have like five or six dozen different varieties? I mean, what really is that, number one? Number two, um, yeah, what else is on it or in it? Um, you know, most most people don't know. And even if you're um, growing it, you don't know the origin of, of, of the seed. You don't know what's in the soil. I mean, there's plenty of opportunity for the white supremacists to um, to taint, even at the genetic level, um, these these plants. Um, and then certainly from the um, more political and, and labor-oriented perspectives, like Dr. Wilson was emphasizing, yeah, so you're not going to have a job and you can't be successful in, um, well, I won't say successful, you, you can't be effective as a um, partner in a relationship or parent or whatever, um, but just just stay high. Mm. It also means that you're not going to be in a defensive posture, um, and anything goes under the system of white supremacy, you know, just push you out, uh, out of the cities, put in uh, a number of dog parks, bike lanes, and, um, you know, 700 square feet uh, condos that cost um, $800,000, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I remember uh, a lot of people did not agree with her stance when she shared this back in 2013. They did not agree and had their own views, which is great. You know, we should all use our brain computer mm -hmm. and come to logical conclusions. But one thing that I would consistently highlight, uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, a third generation physician, general and child psychiatrist. I don't think it should be glossed over when she said that. She treated a number of patients, a sizable number of patients who were uh, exhibiting symptoms, symptoms of psychosis as a result, what she thought was related to their marijuana consumption. I don't think that should be glossed over, taken lightly. Uh, this is not just someone off the street uh, presenting information. Third generation physician, general and child psychiatrist saying, hey, I'm seeing psychosis that I think is related to marijuana consumption. I think that's just an additional one to ponder on process as we try to make sense of all this. Um, I know Dr. Welsing also, that's, that's something that she had a big impact on me. Uh, 
among other areas as well, but certainly reading the newspaper. She would always talk about that, pay attention uh, to what's going on. I know a number of times when I would call her, she would be watching the news constantly uh, and just trying to get more information and seeing how that fit with her theory. So that's definitely one thing that I try to be relentless about is checking the news uh, constantly and reading many different sources uh, to get information. I read this uh, in the Washington Post uh, just within the last couple of days. Uh, and I said, wow, this is <laughs> right explicitly uh, Dr. Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation. I just want to read it really quick and get your thoughts. This post is uh, in Washington, D.C. Reminders of America's dark history of segregation. Colbert I. King authored this piece. Uh, so he says, my recognition of African-American contributions began in the 1940s with annual celebrations of Negro History Week at Stevens Elementary School in my West End foggy bottom community. Our nation's capital is also where I experienced firsthand America's shame. Liberty Baptist Sunday School taught me the Ten Commandments. Civil authority in the city taught me the others. Among them, thou shalt not attend Grant Elementary School on G Street Northwest, which was for white children only. Thou shalt not attempt to enter the Circle Theater at 21st and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, where only whites were allowed. Thou shalt never think about dining downtown. Thou can purchase sodas and sandwiches at the drugstore at the corner of 25th and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, but thou shalt not sit and eat. Thou must stand at the end of the counter and wait patiently to be recognized. Ah, Washington of my youth, a place and time when skin color determined where you lived, attended school, worshipped and worked and how much you could and how much you got paid. I learned that lesson as a teenager looking for part time work. Pick up the January 3rd, 1960 edition of The Post. And what do you see? Boys, white, age 14 to 18 to assist route manager Full or part-time, must be neat in appearance, apply 1346 Connecticut Avenue Northwest. Drivers, truck, colored for trash routes, over 25 years of age, paid vacation, year-round work, must have excellent driving record, apply 1601 West Street, W Street Northeast. Students, boys, white, 14 years and over, jobs immediately available, apply at 724 9th Street Ninth or Northwest. Simply stated, if you're black, get back. And I will stop there. <laughs> any remind you of Dr. Welsing in any way? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, there's there's a continuum. You know, um, in fact, very recently a black female, young black female, won a, uh, a, ca a court case against a, a restaurant owner in D.C. who was just blat blatantly <laughs> discriminating uh, against her and was just so forthright with it and wasn't even trying to hide the fact with other uh, employees um, uh, who were peers of, of the waitress who, but, but yet they, they were classified as, as white. But, I mean, he, he basically said he, I guess the um, young lady who was uh, 
classified as non-white was hired when the owner was was away. And so uh, he was kind of surprised that <laughs> uh, she had been hired and he harassed her um, you know, tremendously immediately and was just very blatant. And so this is all, you know, 20, was this 2015, I think it was just a few months ago. And, uh, you know, it's an upscale restaurant and he basically said he didn't want uh, waitresses that look like that and he didn't want, you know, clientele that looked like that. So. Wow. <laughs> Be explicit about things. Wow. What are, what are some of the things that over the decades um, that you were able to attend the Welsing Institute that have evolved, like things where you can say, uh, this is something that she emphasizes more now, uh, this is a change in, in something that she really tries to make sure that her students grasp about white supremacy, racism that maybe she wasn't emphasizing before or wasn't addressing as much. You know, tell you the truth, she was very uh, consistent on the basics. I mean, she, and some people would complain that she, she talks about the same things uh, over and over. It's because we, we haven't gotten the fundamentals. It has to be, you know, repeated at the, 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 the basic level. You, you know, people want to get to, yeah, but what are we going to do? I'm tired of talking about it uh, and, and analyzing the, the, the question, the issue. What are we going to do? If you have a comprehensive and thorough understanding, then your behavior will be uh, reflective of that. And, you know, we, we largely still need reinforcing um, all the time. But certainly um, black self-respect is the key for us. Justice will be a byproduct of self-respect, black self-respect. So that's what we have. That's, that's our, our predominant project, to cultivate black self-respect. You know, she, she used to draw a diagram of like a, a pyramid shape being the roof, um, and that represented the system of white supremacy. And then she draw two pillars holding up this, um, this rooftop. And one pillar is white intent to survive genetically. The other pillar is black self-hatred and rejection of black self-respect. And so we know that we, we have centuries of historical evidence that proves that we're not going to convince, demonstrate, protest, or pray uh, people who classify themselves as white into not practicing racism anymore. We, we, we know that. We're clear on that. Our opportunity to eliminate the system of white supremacy is on that pillar that we control. So cultivating black self-respect, once we do that, 
we will stop propping up the system of white supremacy because as the vast and overwhelming majority of people on planet Earth are black and shades of black, the only way this small minority can control and dominate the whole world is because of the assistance it's getting from those that are classified as non-white. And so cultivating black self-respect, that's, that's, that's our main um, project. And that entails embracing black, meaning loving and appreciating the fact that you are created, that we are created the way we are as black people. And it means getting out of the fantasy zone of, you know, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to deal with that. I, you know, embrace reality. And the reality is that we're living under a system of white supremacy. You can't change a thing if you don't admit and acknowledge that it exists. So, um, Cultivating black self-respect, that's, that's key. And then, you know, getting an, an understanding, a clear understanding of the system of white supremacy. And so with an understanding, there are certain things that you're not going to do, not, not just in terms of your own behavior with other non-white people, but your expectations of what will happen uh, under the system will, will shift. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, if you understand the nature of a baby, then you're not going to get all upset um, because the diaper needs to be changed or because there's going to be uh, a lot of crying. If you understand it, you, you, you know how to react to that, uh, whatever scenario there is. So um, I think... The message didn't change. The emphasis um, was probably more and more on self-respect because the system has upped its game in uh, black image defamation uh, to a tremendous extent um, as we're in the, the refinement um, domain of the system of white supremacy. And so it's even more... Uh, imperative for people, uh, black people and other non-white people to understand that and to cultivate self-respect because, you know, it it used to be that just, you know, you could point to a a few people who were um, kind of behaving in in ways that were disgraceful to to the collective group. But now it's, it's so commonplace when it comes to parents and families, when it comes to couples, when it comes to how we present ourselves in in public, um, and certainly what's not only in the music, but even worse, um, on television. The, uh, I mean, that should even give us a clue right there. There's so much time, energy, money and and um, effort by the white supremacists 
to tear down the image of black people and then broadcast that worldwide, that should give us a clue about how important black self-respect is. Context of white supremacy. Uh, our guest, Sabrina Johnson, uh, say that is one thing I think it would be hard to hear or read Dr. Welsing's work and miss the importance, uh, the huge priority she placed on black self-respect. Um, I know one thing that came up when we had her sister, uh, Lauren Cresslove, on the program, uh, black mental health, and specifically Dr. Welsing, she also emphasized, I think partly because we do not have black self-respect, that no black person qualifies for black mental health under the system of white supremacy. Um, just can you kind of give some of your thoughts on that? I, I suspect that's something that you heard her share often. Yeah, and I, I think people um, kind of misinterpret um, really what that means. Um, I think she was, she was getting at in terms of having mental health um, you can't be in a fantasy zone and, and pretending that something um, that exists in every aspect of life is just not there. Um, it's almost like if you walked into a, a, a fine upscale home and people are standing around in the living room um, with the fine china and, you know, uh, $8,000 bottle of champagne and caviar and whatever the, the finer things are supposed to be and they're in their um, cocktail wear, etc. And then there's this huge pile of vomit in the center of the floor and nobody's doing anything about it. It's like how can, how can we say that those people are, are healthy? If you are carrying on with this gross, heinous uh, system functioning that affects all of us directly and all of those that we see and interact with, um, yeah, we're, we're, if, if we don't, if we're not recognizing it and then making a, a, a decision in favor of your own preservation, um, then we, we don't have mental health. Agreed, agreed. I definitely think that was one that also, I think, should impact the patience that we have with other black people, uh, recognizing that we have been uh, extremely abused, terror, uh, terrorized uh, under this system, uh, mm -hmm. and just having that patience uh, with other victims. I think that was something Dr. Welsing not just emphasized, but I think that's something that she demonstrated on a regular basis, uh, having just, I won't say infinite, but I mean high levels of patience with other black people, uh, just based on her understanding of racism and, uh, and I think also just her high levels of black self-respect. I think a lot of that was demonstrated with the patience that she had for other black people, uh, Gus T. Renegade included. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. And let me, let me just add that, um, you know, even in, in, the, in a clinical setting, um, exercising a tremendous amount of, of patience and just the drive to understand. I'm, I'm sure you know um, 
that the the subtitle of the ISIS papers, the origin of that, um, when she was um, working as a, a psychiatrist in a, a community clinical setting, the police um, brought a, a man to her who um, was just, you know, rambling and, you know, incoherent and, and all of that. And she, you know, sat and listened to him and, um, you know, through all of, she, she called it, he was speaking in uh, symbolic language, as she put it. And, um, you know, she made the diagnosis, uh, schizophrenic reaction. But then she thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to, I'm just going to listen and see if I can, you know, see what he is, he, what he's, what he's saying, what he's talking about. And at the end of this very lengthy, um, sort of almost gibberish, um, uh, I don't want to say tirade, but this continuous stream of, of, of communication, he, he, the, the first and only coherent thing he said was, Doc, if we could just get the keys to the colors. And that was the origin of the subtitle of the ISIS papers. And so, again, exercising extraordinary patience and a true determination to understand in order to help um, the person who needs help. Um, I mean, I I think that's a, a tremendous example of just that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to nab some of the folks that called in with questions. Uh, just two uh, other points I wanted to make sure that I, I brought up. Um, I guess before I even get to my, my question, uh, just from the, the gun illustration that she brought up earlier, I thought it was, after I had a moment to think about it, the, I guess the cookie cutter or whatever, you can make pancakes or cookies in the, in the shape of a gun. Uh, when you said pancakes, I was like, wow, if they're making uh, pancakes in the shape of a gun, that's fascinating because I think people generally or frequently use Anchimama syrup uh, with their pancakes. That's kind <laughs> of, uh, that is interesting and in line with Dr. Welsing's theory as well, I think. Uh, true, true. Good point. <laughs> for sure. With uh, one of the things that I, I think is just incredibly significant, uh, we talked about this with uh, her sister, uh, Lauren Crest Love, and she, I mean, wow, gave <laughs> a priceless uh, anecdote about uh, the significance of natural hair and uh, her being the first mm-hmm. one that kind of mm-hmm. went natural and, and the impact of that and why she did it. Uh, just can can you talk, it doesn't matter uh, where you see Dr. Wilson, if you see her debating uh, William Shockley some years ago, or if you see her in Hidden Colors more recently, anytime that you see Dr. Wilson talking about racism, white supremacy, she has natural hair. Uh, can you talk about the, mm-hmm. the symbol or just the, the monumental significance of that, particularly for black females, seeing this black female with natural hair talking about white supremacy? Yes, yes. Well, even, again, going back, the Creator made us the first people, black people, and um, all other people sprang forth from us. So the Creator put um, all of these very interesting um, substances and characteristics in us and with us. And so, 
there is great significance to the helix. And we know that uh, scientists now know that the uh, shape of the, the DNA uh, molecules, it's, it's the helix. And so Dr. Wilson often talked about the hair um, and the, the helix um, shape serving as, a, as an antenna for um, picking up frequencies. Um, and, and so if we are number one, um, damaging that, uh, that capability through quote unquote straightening and, and chemical, chemical warfare really on, on our own heads and minds, um, then we're diminishing our capability to function effectively with something that we've been, uh, gifted with. Number one, number two, you have it's it's if you if you really think about it, what black females are saying as we straighten our hair and perm so called perm, which is really temporary, our hair is I wanna look like an imitation white girl. I mean there's 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 something of that I think coming coming forward. Um, why not save money um, and certainly save your health and well-being um, by wearing your hair in its natural state? Now, a lot of sisters, if they um, become pregnant, they will stop getting relaxers or perms etc., touch-ups and all that sort of stuff. Now, if you stop and think about the science behind that, there's an admission that it's unhealthy because if it's unhealthy to put these chemicals on your scalp um, because of uh, potential impact on uh, the unborn child, then that means it's harmful to you, the person, even if you're not pregnant. Um, but we, we're, we're not in understanding of the context um, that we're functioning in. And it's, um, yeah, it's an indication of our, our lack of understanding and our lack of self-love and, and not having appreciation for the gift that we've been uh, given that we you know, did not earn. For sure, for sure. Um, just you use the term appreciation. I think uh, one of the things that we can should be doing, uh, appreciating uh, the monumental effort uh, that Dr. Welsing invested uh, in trying to aid, care for, heal black people, victims of white supremacy. Um, you said that one of the things that you think is really important, uh, the way that we think about and things that we're doing to preserve the legacy of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, just can you speak to that? What are the things that we should be doing? And even can you talk about your own efforts to continue the Cress Welsing Institute? Sure. Um, you know, I, I said um, in my remarks at the 40-day ceremony, uh, ascension ceremony for her in uh, 
uh, of February 11th, um, that was, I, I said that, you know, we should function as an, an echo of Dr. Wellesing, so that her message reverberates um, and that her, her, her voice is expanded and elevated and, and amplified. And as you have noted uh, time and time again, which is tremendously, tremendously important, she has left a, a mountain of, uh, of materials. Um, her words, those powerful words that she's put on the pages of papers and speeches, essays, books, um, and her voice, um, there's so much, and, and we, we have to, in everything that we do, amplify that, make it available, um, point um, towards it. Um, and, I, I've, you know, we've tried to do that in all of the, the tributes and the um, remembrances and programs and all the things that we've been doing. We always want to have a component that includes Dr. Welsing in her own words. And then her voice is carrying her message. I mean, her, her there's, there's, it doesn't even need touching up. I mean, her, her words, let them stand, um, just make them available to, um, uh, to, to others. Um, yeah, I think there are a number of things that we can do very specifically. Um, n- number one, commit to memory, the functional definition of racism. Also, practice the um, what's what was originally known as the the ten stops that were expanded, the behavior code for black self and group respect. To read, 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 turn off the television unless you are monitoring something um, with a critical eye. Read, 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 and cultivate black self-respect. And have an agenda when you um, interact with other people. So, you know, as I said, the, the Crest Wellesley Institute, a lecture series and an information exchange opportunity for questions and answers and, and really free psychotherapy um, for all those years. Now, before the, the Crest Wellesley Institute um, took the shape um, that it's had for the last uh, couple of decades, you know, Dr. Wellesley and Mr. Fuller, when she was working at at Howard, um, she would have, at the medical school, she would have Mr. Fuller come and speak every Monday night from 8 p.m. to 1 in the morning. And they were, you know, formulating their ideas um, and, you know, just talking and reasoning through and, you know, sharpening up uh, what eventually became... Uh, the United Independent Compensatory Code System concept, and um, meanwhile, she has formulated the Crest theory of color confrontation, and and 
was doing the essays at the National Medical Association and finally uh, collected them um, and published them in the form of the ISIS papers, etc. So there's there's longevity there, and one thing that we need to to think about is, um, you know, this is this is a uh, you know a long battle. We're we're in a war, and so we have to think about things from, from that perspective. Um, you know, one of the other comments that I made um, at the 40-day ascension ceremony, you know, I said, embrace black. And I also said, embody calm and have something in our, uh, our lives that helps us um, constructively release some of the stressors um, so that we can then function at a, at a calm level. Because you, you you have to if you're if you're playing chess, and and we can envision that we are in, in a in a big way, um, you do need to be calm. And we saw her exercise calm, even you know in her debates with Shockley and on the Phil Donahue show, and when she was on the Ron Reagan show with the um, Aryan Nations uh, guy the white supremacist, Tom Metzger, um, et cetera. So from a position of, of, of calm, and it's certainly better for our, our health too. But, you know, I envision part of or a big part of my role as clearing the way, moving the obstacles that might be positioned between black people who and other non-white people who don't yet have an understanding of the system of white supremacy and Dr. Welsing's and Mr. Fuller's body of work. So I think there are a number of um, sort of uh, psychological um, barriers that, that, you know, it's, it's a wall that goes up maybe when you first hear um, some of the concepts, like the term victim, you know, that turns a lot of people off and turns them away because we don't understand context. Um, I remember reading in the code, I hadn't yet read the, the full code, um, Neely Fuller's book, um, but I, I think when I first got it, I, was, I just kind of paged through a little bit and I happened onto a passage that said, you know, white people are smart, are the smartest people. And immediately I was like, uh-uh, because I've been in the classroom with them since kindergarten. And, you know, so, you know, knowing from our own experiences or what we've encountered when we've shared information with other uh, non-white people, um, all, all of those things that might serve as barriers, if we can, um, you know, put them on the table and then sort of explode the myth so that people can embrace the, the body of work, um, you know, without, without delay um, when they're being inter- introduced to these concepts and, and this analysis. So I think... Um, focusing on, on removing 
these um, psychological barriers and, and helping people to just incrementally um, understand the logic um, in, a, a, again, a gentle way so that you're not offending people. Um, we just need to, to have a critical mass of people, uh, non-white people, understand at the fundamental level the system of white supremacy, what it is and how it works. And then we can do the, 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 the ultimate goal objective of producing justice, eliminating the system of white supremacy, and replacing it with a system of justice so that we can have peace. So her, just, you know, sharing her work, that's, that's the, the greatest thing that we can do, and coming together and doing it. So, you know, we had that, uh, the setting, the lecture series setting, but it doesn't have to be something as large and, and formal as, as that. So years ago, um, in fact, after the Race Relations Institute um, at Fisk University, the, the, the 33rd um, Race Relations Institute, wherein um, I interviewed the um, self-described white supremacist, um, older white female, Farrell Winfrey, I invited some, um, uh, some of the Welsing Institute students and um, Dr. Welsing and uh, Mr. Fuller over to, to view it. Um, and from that point on, I said, wow, you know, um, it's, it's great to be in a small setting and able to discuss um, these matters. So I began on the, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King's holiday is celebrated on the third Monday of January. So the, the, the Sunday, the day before, I decided, you know, um, and Dr. King said he wanted to be remembered as a drum major for justice. So I said that's going to be the, the justice gathering. So um, Dr. Welsing and uh, a number of students from the Institute and Mr. Fuller and I would... Um, would meet at, at my house and we'd just talk and basically share and do the same things we were doing at the Crest Wilson Institute in, in a home setting. Sometimes we'd view um, videos of, of documentaries or something that we've of interest. We'd share news stories and discuss um, agenda items. I'd, you know, prescribe a, a, an agenda or maybe a book to, to discuss, uh, et cetera. And everybody can do that. Any, any and everybody can do that in whatever setting, um, you know, they operate in. We have to talk about the system and what it is and how it is um, functioning and affecting, affecting our lives. There's, Mr. Fuller often talks about you know, the seeds of destruction of the system are contained within the system. So as we see the shift um, from the refinement stage of um, white supremacy, um, meaning, you know, everything's covert and, you know, there's a lot of showcasing of 
quote-unquote black success on, on the one, two, three level, but not in terms of the masses, etc. cetera. Um, as, as the shift is moving from that back to the, the brutal establishment phase tactics, I think young black people are waking up um, more and more so. So it, it, it works, I don't quite want to say in our favor, I just want to say that it can help push us towards a greater understanding, a greater number of people um, who are classified as non-white, understanding that people who classify themselves as white have an agenda that they are absolutely unified on. And we see it in the political uh, arena these days, um, for sure. Um, in fact, there's an article in the um, Wall Street Journal today, um, Angry White Males Propel Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Uh, many presidential primary voters uh, feel free trade has marginalized their jobs and prospects. Of course, they're not going to quite come out and say <laughs> um, what, it, what it really is in terms of their level of desperation. They're going to blame it on free trade and jobs. But basically, um, white males in particularly, particular are feeling extraordinarily uh, desperate. And so I think that you focused on some of your, your past shows um, on the, the heroin um, epidemic and uh, the, the new law enforcement response or non-response to those um, outbreaks and, and the legal um, uh, latitude um, that's given to suburban white kids who are caught up in, in heroin big time with over 90% of the new cases of, of heroin heroin addiction in the last decade occurring um, in, in white uh, youth and, and young adults. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have an article. I want to get your thoughts because I think it highlights a lot of Dr. Welsing's theories and a lot of what she just touched on with the uh, election. Um, and I want to nab some of the folks who dialed in uh, who have questions. Uh, the Number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you have a question for Miss Sabrina Johnson. Uh, caller Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Sabrina? You should be with us, sir. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to you, Gus. Good evening, Sabrina. Good evening. Um, I had two questions for you. Um, one, this one's real quick. Um, can you give us an example of you witnessing Dr. Wellesley interacting with white people who challenged their views on white supremacy? Yes. Um, there were... Uh, couple, a few instances where white people would come to the institute meetings. Um, and of course, the, the 
Dr. Wilson's dialogue didn't change at all, of course. Um, in one instance, a white female called her in, a, in at her office um, the following day and left a message on the answering machine that um, after your lecture, my brain was popcorn, which is, you know, <laughs> interesting. Um, there was there was an instance where a um, white female um, came there and through a series of questions, it was revealed, although she said she was married, and well, well actually she was there with her her so-called husband, her white husband, um, who was sitting next to her. And she was talking about how attracted she is to black males, which is very interesting <laughs> to, to say that, um, you know, when your so-called husband is seated next to you. We kind of reasoned later that, um, you know, they, that was a, um, a farce, um, actually, and um, they were just trying to be disruptive. Um, but Dr. Welsing would um, ask questions and allow people to talk and, and just um, basically, you know, take the stage, so to speak, and, and shut them down because when it... People who classify themselves as white will talk about racism to an extent. Um, however, when it comes to the genetic discussion, the discussion about fear of white genetic annihilation, their vulnerability, somehow that never really takes shape, which um, brings to mind that I, I, I do want to mention this. Um, because there are a lot of black people who are on the hype um, wagon with Tim Wise. Um, Dr. Welsing and Mr. Fuller and a few of us um, institute students went to Fisk University's Race Relations Institute both in 1998 and the year 2000. And Tim Wise was there. At that time, he was a pretty <laughs> ragged-looking looking person, person. And while he would say things that were critical of white people and white people's treatment of black people, he also um, did a, a radio spot, and he said something very insulting about Dr. Welsing. He basically said she talks some psychobabble bullshit. So that was one indication. Another indication is that he spoke with me, and he spoke with Mr. Fuller, and he spoke with Dr. Welsing, and he told each of us different stories about his background. So, you know, that in and of itself tells you something, too. There were a lot of incidents um, at the Race Relations Institute that led us to conclude, and these were at Fisk University in Nashville, led us to conclude that he was, um, you know, an, an agent um, being, being placed there to be disruptive. And we, 
because of counter-racist codification, because of Dr. Wilson's analysis of what drives the behavior dynamic behind white supremacy, you know, it was... We, we, we helped a lot of people understand what was going on, and we could stand firm against the um, assaults on our understanding of racism, white supremacy. There was a, a lot of attempts to derail the, the conversation and the understanding of, of racism, even at a conference that is to discuss racism. So we all concluded that um, Tim Wise was, um, uh, was just prov- a provocateur. And so he kind of was out of sight for a number of years. And then he re-emerged and started uh, being on the lecture circuit, speaking in black churches especially and uh, all over the web, etc., publishing a number of books with titillating titles and talking bad about white people. Um, number one, he calls himself a white supremacist, so we have to listen to that. But secondly, he, he when he reemerged, he, he took on the, the persona and the and the swag of a black preacher, you know, in terms of how he not only how he dresses and presents himself, but the manner in which he speaks, the cadence, the whole um, emotional hot button words. Um, so he's he's fit himself into that um, that black preacher mode, um, which is, you know, even more uh, dangerous for people who are already programmed as victims uh, to look for and desire a white savior. Um, So I just wanted to um, note that, and and we we have to be very... uh, wary of more of those. If, if there are white people who classify themselves as white who are truly um, committed to eliminating the system of white supremacy, then their work is not dealing with black folks or talking to black folks. Their work is dealing with stopping the white people who are practicing racism. So we, we really have to get out of that um, white savior mindset. Yes, I agree with you. Um, I think everyone who um, listens to this show has come up with a um, very similar analysis of Tim Wise as well. Um, I, I think he's a white validation drug dealer, um, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, but my, my next question for you, um, and I just wanted to get your analysis, um, your welding analysis. We have a little thing that we call on this show a, a welding moment. And I had one um, watching um, the political theater. And um, I was watching one evening, and, um, and you guys both touched on it. Um, both of you guys gave a pretty good example. Um, I saw um, Ted, um, not Ted Cruz, um, Rick Rubio. And um, he was... Um, attacking um, Donald Trump, and he went at him 
by attacking his hands and saying, um, you know, he has small hands. So, you know, that the, the running joke with that. And um, Trump came back <laughs> with a press conference saying, you know, these hands aren't small. You know, these hands can hit a golf ball 285 yards. And I always <laughs> just hit me with Welsing, like, you know, she always said the white people played the ball with the little white ball that goes into the black hole. You know, and that's just what he pushed out. And, um... He also made a comment which I think is um, causing him um, the election right now. Um, but he went at Trump's color, and he said um, he'll be the the Canada in chief, and um, went at the orange color. And I just put myself in that mindset, thinking genetic annihilation. You know, um, I'm sure everyone watched right watching that just automatically said this little Cuban mother. You know, how dare he? You know. His, um, they know that they have that deficiency of melanin. And um, I just had another Wells in my pleasure, genetic annihilation. They know that, you know, and it, I think it um, caught on to them in masses, which is why he's not um, no longer, um, you know, winning, coming in third or fourth place now. But um, just, um, I just wanted to know your analysis of that. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Okay, Brother Gus, um, I was getting some cut out. And I, I think he said, so I'm going to have you kind of repeat this scenario. I heard that there was an accusation of someone's color. Correct. Uh, I think the first thing he said was Donald Trump, uh, Marco Rubio, saying that he had small hands. And I guess mm-hmm. people have made an association between hand size and genitalia. And Donald Trump came back and said, you know, my hands aren't small. I can hit a golf ball. Uh, you know, close to 300 yards. And that reminded him of Dr. Welsing. She frequently talks about the the symbolism behind the game of golf. And then the second thing was uh, Rubio uh, critiqued Donald Trump's complexion. uh, And he said that uh, he felt that that hurt him uh, having him having Marco Rubio, who uh, is associated with the area of the world known as Cuba, um, having him question Donald Trump's complexion, uh, i.e. his whiteness, and if you had any thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because um, I, I noted that Donald Trump's wife, uh, her, her name and her um, appearance, um, her name is Melania, like, or, or uh, it might be pronounced Melania, but melanin is... is the, the base there, and yeah, it, it, it does appear that um, if she were in Nazi Germany, she would be wearing a, a yellow star. So I, I think that's um, that's interesting. Meaning she she would be classified as as carrying some genetic material that would be undesirable. Um, uh, so that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think that calling uh, into question his quote-unquote purity um, might indeed have uh, somewhat of an effect. It, 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 it might. But, you know, Dr. Welsing talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the political dynamics as they were unfolding. And, you know, we have to really be prepared um, and making moves, maybe a couple of well-placed questions at a at a Trump rally, or 
or for for any of the the so-called presidential candidates, as a matter of fact, but um, you know might make the difference uh, between uh, who ends up on the on the ballot ultimately. But whoever does, um, we, we we're still existing in a system of white supremacy, as we are now um, with um, a black president. Um, so, you know, we have to keep doing what we're doing, and our focus is on cultivating black self-respect and helping other non-white people understand um, and being supportive of, um, you know, other black people. Right on. Uh, we will nab our next caller, uh, 5640. 5640, did you have a question for Sabrina? You should be with us. Caller, last four digits, 5640. Did you have a question? Uh, you, I heard some noise from your line, but I'm not hearing a question. If you're just listening, that's fine. Did you have a question or are you just listening? Okay. I'll assume they're just listening. If you uh, have a question, uh, you might need to hang up and then dial back in and put your hand up because uh, I'll just assume, I'm just going to assume that you're just listening and uh, meet your line so we have a lot of background noise. Uh, the caller retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, did you have a question for Sabrina Johnson? You should be with us. Yes. Greetings. Uh, Miss Sabrina and all of the listeners. Uh, Mr. Fuller was responsible to me with the what part, what meaning system, global system of racism and white supremacy. Dr. Frank Quest Wilson was responsible for me with the uh, why part of racism and white supremacy. Uh, and uh, the uh, answer in my mind is codified, codified uh, thought, speech, and action behavior. Uh, this work, my question is, this, this work that you have indicated, and I've also had similar experiences with non-white black people especially, saying, well, let's stop, when do we stop all the talking and, and get to work? Would you say that the actual work is thought, speech, and, thought, speech, and, speech and action in a codified way. It, 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 would you think that, would you say that's correct? That is that, being that, is that, that is the work. Ab- absolutely. It's, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's all there in, in the, in the textbook, um, <laughs> for victims of racism, white supremacy. It's, it's all there. Yes. Yes. But it's not, it's not sexy. It's not right. glamorous. It doesn't make you go ooh and ah and wow. It's just trodden through. It's repetitive. It's dry and cold and logical. And, and a lot of people who would, you know, sit for a lecture... Um, from Dr. Welsing, um, 
aren't really necessarily willing to invest what it takes to read, study, and apply counter-racist codification. Unfortunately, that's, that's just the, the, the facts of things now. Um, but, uh, you know, as we're, we're trying to help people um, understand just fundamentally um, what the system is and, and how it works and the, the actions that we can take. And, you know, there was so much activity in the 90s, particularly amongst a lot of um, students um, of the Institute. Um, I mean, a number of people were having some very, very significant workplace conflict situations. And we were, you know, working through them and strategizing. And the code works. I'm telling you, the code works. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, uh, last thing is uh, because in, in my mind, when I hear this, we need to get to work, it's, it's this grandeur about this large group or large groups of non-white black people uh, a lot with uniforms on going about the means of, of uh, creating some sort of... Uh, valid force to force white people to stop practicing racism. And with that thought in mind, it's telling me that's probably the last thing that we need to be attempting, uh, trying to attempt again. Uh, And it is something that uh, they have been quite successful in dismantling, as Mr. Fuller says, within about 10, 15 minutes. But but a the code that we're talking about on programs like this is actually, quote unquote, the answer. Does it sound correct to you on what I just said? Absolutely, it is. I'm a witness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, using codified language um, and structuring questions and taking notes and what you say and how you say them and what you don't say. And, and all of those things, raising uh, constitutional questions in the workplace, I'm telling you, I can point not only in the mirror, but I can point to other people who, you know, have been able to accomplish what they were seeking to accomplish when they were aggressed heavily um, on, their, on their jobs. It works. A lot of problem solving. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you very much. And thank you so much. Uh, Ross, did you have uh, any questions for Sabrina? You should be with us. Uh, Yes, greetings to you, Gus, and uh, greetings to you, Mrs. Johnson. It is an honor to hear you speak. Um, I just wanted to say uh, you are a brilliant example of uh, what studying at the feet of Dr. Wilson can create, the, the type of person. Um, and it's really an honor to hear you speak tonight. I have a couple of questions for you. Um, Dr. Welsing, on many occasions, spoke either in Proverbs or she would give a lot of examples to explain certain concepts. And I wanted to ask, since you would be there in person um, on a lot of occasions uh, for the Institute, 
Um, can you just, because um, one thing I do know is that in African culture, traditional culture, and as well as ancient Egypt, they would have like a classroom setting where they would teach you with almost like a blackboard setting. And then they would take the students out in nature to show them how these concepts played out in nature to kind of bring it home. And I just wanted to know um, what effect did uh, Dr. Wilson's use of whether it was proverbs or examples to explain the concepts that she was trying to convey. Um, what kind of effect did that have on the students in her class? Mm, that's a, a great question. And uh, thank you for your um, very kind uh, comments also. But, um, yeah, it's, we, we do very lovely, wonderful, and interesting things with, with not just language, our words, but how we communicate, especially um, in, in African traditions. And yes, speaking with examples that are connected to nature or, you know, proverbs really carries the point because it's, it's not, it's no longer abstract. It's something that's within easy reach and, and intellectual grasp, no matter you know, um, no matter what, because it's, it's just it's basic. It's basic. And so for her to, you know, use um, metaphors in that way or visual examples um, is, is very, very helpful, and it's something that um, I think we, we do naturally anyway if, if it's not... Um, educated or miseducated out of us. That's our, our natural inclination. And and we we speak with with emphasis. Um, you know, especially and of, of course I, I would say uh, I'm I'm more keen on this <laughs> coming from the South. But um, you know, we we don't just say things in a um, sort of narrow manner. There's this, um, it's, it's elongated, it's, it's, it's stretched out, it's, 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 it's so that you can't miss it. You know, we won't say, we won't just say, um, <laughs> okay, Dr. Huffington, you and it, it illustrates this whole um, albinism um, uh, dynamic in that, you know, um, the albino mutation occurs out of, out of black. And it's, you know, a rare thing relative to uh, all of the other births um, that um, happen from color, with color. <laughs> and so, you know, the notion of, not just saying somebody had a dirty house, but she had so many roaches up in there, it was even some white ones. So, I mean, that's how we, <laughs> we, we talk about things. And so there's that, that um, visual element. And while that, that is such a, uh, a pro proverb, <laughs> but it's, uh, it illustrates how it is that we can communicate um, ideas that, um, you know, we might have some hesitation or reluctance to accept. But if, if you make it plain and basic, um, 
that's it. And, you know, I find when I think about my grandparents and elders who, you know, didn't have uh, the opportunity to go to school or get much schooling, um, their ability to transmit ideas and teach fundamental behaviors is phenomenal. And I think it stands tall because they weren't (laughs) um, uh, inundated with all of the um, the irrelevant uh, stuff that gets layered on us through the education, so-called um, school education process. So I, I think you, you raise a great point, and I think we should be cognizant of how we communicate um, these concepts as we're trying to reach other um, black and other non-white people to, uh, to lift their their level of understanding. Thank you very much for that answer. And um, I wanted to ask, do you have offspring? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, um, the reason... Uh, uh-huh. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I was going to say the reason I was asking was because um, I wanted to ask you how has excuse me how has studying at the feet of Dr. Wilson changed the way that you reared your children, and what would you say would be the difference between how you think you would have raised them without encountering her information versus how you do raise them now, having that that information under your belt and being such as a, a staunch student of hers. And I'll mute my line. Thank you so much for um, coming on the program this evening. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. And let me let me just say this: um, my quote unquote quote unquote my offspring are you know what's termed stepchildren. So I didn't raise them from birth, um, but I, I contributed to their um, upbringing uh, and, and into adulthood. And I think that certainly my um, my grasp of the basics of the um, system of of racism, white supremacy, and the the various um, approaches to understanding what's going on helped tremendously uh, in terms of our our relationships. Um, are, you know, helping them to see and grow. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's just to help the quality of relationships, all relationships, whether they're um, parent, child, um, or, you know, in, in other kinds of pairings. Um, it's just been, it's been tremendous. And, you know, you're, you have confidence but it's confidence that's not um, from an egotistical framework. It's confidence based on understanding and a lot of humility. Um, and so I think patience, again, is something that Dr. Welsing taught through example. And, you know, that, that just, it rubs off. It, it rubs off. And all of the things that, well, I mean, parenting is really um, 
psychological manipulation, um, you know, in the in the early years, uh, in many ways. I mean, you're 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 trying to shift their attention from this to that, or um, you're trying to distract them, um, you know, from this thing that's upsetting to them and um, that sort of thing. And you're you're trying to say things and do things that will incentivize certain behaviors and and uh, dissuade them from other behaviors. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of energy that goes into um, strategic thinking and, um, you know, just focus on behavior, one's own and one's a reaction to, to, to conflict or to, to being under attack um, that, I think it's transferable to our relationships, particularly parent-child relationships, once we have an understanding of uh, the system of white supremacy, what it, work, what it is and how it works, and then also the, the driving force that um, um, motivates the, the behavior uh, by those who classify themselves as white. Yes, it's I think that anybody who has a grasp of um, this analysis and codification, counter-racist codification, will be more effective um, at parenting and all other relationships um, than if they were still very confused. Right on. Uh, caller in Canada. Did you have questions for Sabrina? You should be with us. Well, uh, good evening, Sabrina. Uh, nice to hear you. Good did, did you guys? Did you all talk about Trump or the the election? Because I only caught part of the show. Because mm. well, yeah. I have I have two. Okay, okay. I have two questions that were are related to that. The first question is. Who do you think is going to win, the Democrats and the Republican and the presidency? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing for us to focus on is remembering that the so-called Democrats and the so-called Republicans are just um, separate ends of the spectrum, the political spectrum in the system of white supremacy. And so, you know, in, in my mind, I describe the, the Democrats as having you on a 14-foot leash and then the Republicans having you on a 5-foot leash. And instead of us arguing about um, or, or being upset about this leash is longer than the other, our focus should be on, you know, I'm cutting the leash. I'm not going to be on a leash. Um, so... Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to predict, but I think we can, we can lay out some scenarios. Um, one thing we need to be aware of is the role of technology in our lives and, um, sort of the, uh, electoral world. So even if people vote, uh, in, in terms of their sentiments a certain way, 
that doesn't mean that will be the outcome of the election results. Um, with electronic voting, there is certainly the, the possibility of great uh, manipulation, um, mischief, and um, that sort of thing on the part of the people who classify themselves as white. So, you know, even these these polls, all these polls, you know, at one of the uh, Race Relations Institute um, meetings at CISC, there was um, a person from the Gallup uh, family, the Gallup poll, polling family. I think his name was Frank. Anyway, I, I remember getting into a, a, a verbal tussle with him and basically saying um, polls don't really mean anything because, number one, you aren't really eliciting information from people. What you're doing is you're imposing ideas on them based on how you frame the questions, number one. Number two, statistically, it doesn't really make sense. You know, if you're um, saying um, the majority of people in the United States want to do X, but you've only um, gotten polling um, surveys from, you know, a very, very small fraction, then you're, you're just extrapolating. And, you know, it, it doesn't, where's the accuracy in that? But most important how does a poll, statistically, how does a poll account for lying? I mean, straight out lying. And we know under the system of white supremacy, the chief tools used to maintain uh, the system are violence and deception. Deception. So there's... And, and you can't even make real generalizations about lying because, for instance, I think that, you know, if, if I asked um, uh, 100 elected officials, congressional, U.S. congressional elected officials, um, you know, how old is your grandmother? I think that probably... 99% of them would tell the truth. Now, if I asked a question about um, whether they were having an extramarital affair, and they are, <laughs> I think that 100% of them would lie, at least initially. A lot of them would, would hold on to that lie for a long time after that <laughs> until it just they couldn't anymore. So people, you can't make generalizations and, and attach a, a statistic to it about, um, you know, correcting for a margin of error because a certain number of people lie or a certain percentage of, of people lie about something because people lie consistently or not so consistently about different uh, questions and different issues. So polling is really just a propaganda tool. It's to have people think 
that a certain thing is is going on or the the level of support of something or someone is is uh, is something when it really isn't and we saw that play out um with uh Cruz uh I think a um, month ago or or so his campaign started telling people in one particular state I don't remember where it was that Ben Carson had dropped out and so that had an effect on people who might have um, voted for for Carson, and then the the um, the Cruz campaign apologized, and he uh, allegedly fired the, the the campaign person who had who had done that or started that rumor. But it just goes to show, you know, people can say something and influence um, you know electoral behavior. So I think the whole there's a lot of hype out there. We don't really know what the numbers are for people who are supporting um, things, but we can listen to their words and, and read the words of those who are speaking, although we don't know what they're, you know, how many there are. Um, and they're clear. Those Trump supporters, they don't care about anything other than here is this person who classifies himself as white who is giving voice to what it is that they wish they could say out loud. Um, and nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how non-substantive he is on the policy questions. It doesn't matter who he insults and offends, whether it's even white women. <laughs> um, and, and the list goes on and on. So I, th- I think we should just prepare to, to do our work of cultivating black self-respect, understanding the system of white supremacy, racism, how it works, what it is, and then practicing counter-racist codification. Do you have another question, uh, caller in Canada? Yeah. Yes. I, th- thank you for answering. I I agree um, with that because I've always been a bit funny about how I thought about polls. Um, the second question, relating to the to, to sort of what you ended off with, actually, is I get the feeling the more and more that I guess maybe this could be my own confusion, but the more and more I talk with black people, specifically black people, over maybe it's because I'm in Canada, it's different, and you know. Canadian white supremacists, I, I would argue, are some of the most refined. But I find that people don't really want to engage racism seriously until it directly affects them, or it's yeah, yeah until it less it directly clearly affects them, like a sort of Trump-like person. So I kind of wonder sometimes if maybe that is what's needed—that five-foot leash—to maybe get other people to want to really be truly, deeply committed to replacing white supremacy with justice. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very harsh, harsh medicine, so to speak, but I think it, it does have the effect of, of waking people up. I, I, I don't say that I... I, I you know, we would want Trump um, uh, to be 
victorious, certainly. Um, but I think along the way, we can we can point to and help people understand the implications of not just what he says, but the people who support him, the people who say um, he's, he's their guy and look at where they are and look at what they do because they're not all um, quote-unquote blue-collar, uneducated, you know, white people from Appalachia. They cover a wide swath. And so, you know, what is it that's sort of the unifying principle with them? If we see that there are people who will support him no matter what, and he's broken all of the, the, the quote-unquote taboos, um, offending, you know, John McCain in terms of in a, a decorated, considered, you know, war hero, having been a, a, a POW and suffered torture and all of that, you know, these people are lifted up in this American um, society, so-called. Um, and he was very, and Trump was very insulting to him. He's insulted women, including white women. Um, and, and yet, there's something it's not quite explicitly spoken, not quite, um, that is um, keeping uh, him, you know, with, with all the support he has. And if we can just ask critical questions, well-placed questions with people who we're trying to help understand, non-white people who we're trying to help understand what's going on, at some point, you know, when a question is, is, is asked, the brain goes to work on it, even, you know, beyond the moment. Um, and so if we can help uh, black people understand simply by posing questions to them, you know, eventually, hopefully, it'll take root that, wait a minute, okay, this doesn't quite add up. So maybe my assessment of things was was not quite accurate. Maybe I can uh, explore something else. A uh, person that dialed in from a blocked number. Did you have a question for Sabrina? You should be with us. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Can you? Yes, um, I just had a a couple of questions. And, you know, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. I knew Dr. Frances Quest-Welding. She was actually my psychiatrist for about a year. Um, I'm a practicing attorney. I've been practicing for over 20 years. And um, she helped me overcome an employment situation about five or six years ago. Um, so I'm very grateful to her. And I guess my question has to do with, you know, Personally, I find it, I'm finding it more and more offensive every day, every year, that I'm sitting next to colleagues. I'm going to court. I'm seeing my colleagues who apparently are supposed to be lawyers just like me. And they classify themselves as white. And they're sitting there taking from me 
because they're benefiting under the system, and if if I'm correct, the system is set up to my detriment because I'm not white. I'm a black person, person who does not classify themselves as white. Um, can you equate that to to witchcraft? I mean, I, I know that sounds a little odd, but here you have a whole you know class of people, minority people on planet Earth. And their whole existence depends upon my suffering and the majority suffering of people who are not white. And, you know, and they're denying it. They're deceptive. You know, I mean, and I'm just, they're constantly opposing. And I just don't think they will ever change. And I think that unless people, I'm wondering, maybe I should just ask a question. If this system is the most evil thing that has ever existed on planet Earth, the system of racism, white supremacy, can you equate that to witchcraft? Well, I, I wouldn't equate it to witchcraft because then the question becomes, what is a witch and what is witchcraft and by whose definition? And, you know, is there, is there something solid we can... Um, uh, agree upon uh, or not, we can um, assess it as a system, uh, a behavioral system and a power dynamic. Um, that's clear. Um, that's evil, the evidence of evil it. evil power dynamic. If they're sitting there practicing evil for centuries and thousands of years, isn't that witchcraft? Well, the the whole notion of of evil um, characterizations like that, you know, certainly one one could argue, yes, it's evil. Yes, absolutely. But the question is that is that helpful? Is that kind of a characterization helpful towards um, problem solving? And I would say, no. Um, because we need to understand things at a scientific level. So just as, you know, research scientists don't talk about cancer cells as being wicked and evil and they um, they do this deceptively and et cetera, that's not the analysis. The analysis is, well, what is a cancer cell? What is it made of? How does it behave under this set of circumstances? What if we change the, um, the, the cellular structure or the pH or the, you know, wh- whatever? Uh, then how does it react to that? How, how so that's, does the rate that's change, assuming, et cetera? That's assuming something can be changed scientifically with cancer cells. They're not thinking. But if these people are thinking constantly, and they're always thinking about how to do something wrong and incorrect, I would surmise that, you know, instead of overthinking it from a scientific point, that they are inherently evil. Okay, so what's your next step? I guess my next step would be to make sure that all people who are not classified as white recognize that they are evil and that maybe they're incompetent to be, you know, to be in charge of anybody. And maybe they should be ousted of power everywhere. Okay, and how does that happen? I don't know. That's the hard part. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, again, if you are able to access um, Dr. Wilson's body of work, um, her her lectures, her interviews, I think um, Calif has a an archive of 31 interviews that she's um, conducted over the past several years um, there. If you give yourself time with with an open um, sense of um, how you're approaching it, to really listen and say, you know what? I am going to really relax everything that might be in opposition in my mind as I listen and just absorb um, these concepts and, and check them with my own sense of logic. We're, we're, we're born with, with, with logic. It's there. And the only reason... Um, it, it doesn't function effectively is because it's it's layered over with um, a whole bunch of stuff um, that we can peel away, though. So just listen to her her words and read her words and read um, Mr. F- and listen to Mr. Fuller's as well. Um, the 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 roadmap for our own behavior and cultivating black self-respect and the actions that we take in relationship to each other and in our uh, encounters with people who classify themselves as white. It's, it's what we can do is, and it's, it's all there. And if we right. do it, it works. I'm, a, I'm aware of that. And, you know, I've been practicing some of the things that I've gotten out of the textbook that Dr. That Neely Fuller has written. Um, I guess my own, my last question is, even if you are a non-white person and you do all of those things, that's not going to stop something that is inherently evil from continuing to oppose you. And I think that maybe people who are not classified as white should recognize that in the end, and maybe, maybe this thing is going to come to a head. Maybe there is going to be one big war, and maybe it is our responsibility to take these people out. And I'll mute my line. Well, we're already in one big war, and we have been for centuries. Um, and and again, words, definitions of words, very very important. So. When we say war, a lot of people just think of the the battlefield scenes that you, that we've witnessed in in movies or on film, and um, you know somebody's running up a hill and behind a tree and in some thick um, foliage and um, in digging ditches and um, their bodies laying around and all that sort of stuff. The landscape of war under the system of white supremacy appears differently in different areas. There are some places that it is like that. But look, at, we're, we're at war in America, so-called America. I mean, the war reaches here as it, as it extends uh, throughout the whole globe. 
we we don't really recognize it because we already have a vision in our minds of what warfare is. But no, the, the war is on right now. Now, in terms of a, a full understanding of the system of, of white supremacy, racism, how it works, again, because people who classify themselves as white are a tiny, tiny minority uh, on the planet, the way it's being held up and held together is by the cooperation of people who are classified as non-white because we are lacking in understanding and lacking in self-respect. We help prop up the system. Once we understand, cultivate black self-respect, then our behavior changes, and it's our behavior change that will no longer prop the system up, and so it will crumble down. And so it's not a matter of, of saying, you know, we're, we're, we should kill them all. Because, number one, they are some masters of some guns and weaponry. Um, and, number two, we're, there are too many of us who are still so confused that we don't know who to point the gun at. So that's not where, where we need to be looking um, in terms of a solution. It's just the, the basic um, behaviors, just very, very, very basic. Even those, those, those 10 stops or, and the expanding into the 17, um, behavior code uh, for black self and group respect, just that. I mean, people are looking for this grandiose, one of the uh, callers earlier talked about it, um, you know, this, this, this great, grand effort. No, just stop gossiping about one another. Stop allowing our, not, stop supporting black image defamation. You know, stop having, celebrating um, despicable imagery of black people, you know, scandal and, and how to get away with murder and, and empire. I mean, that's worse than, um, you know, the, the raunchiest, degrading rap lyrics. I mean, you have black women having parties, watch parties, to, to to collectively soak in all of that uh, horrific, horrific, it doesn't get lower than that, horrific degradation and, and base behavior. But just master this simple behavior code, that begins to turn the ship around. Before we nab our quick caller just uh, on that point that racism is war, (laughs) racism, white supremacy is war, Uh, Flint, Michigan, not that that's the only place that has poisoned water, but Flint, Michigan, I think Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, I'm pretty sure she would have said that is chemical biological warfare right there to have a predominantly uh, town that has predominantly black people. Uh, You can't even get basic water 
that has not been poisoned. I think that's a great illustration of what she was talking about. Um, the caller at, No doubt, no doubt. Caller at uh, 9684, 9684. Did you have a question uh, for Sabrina Johnson? Hello. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to say hello to the call, to the, I'm sorry, the, to, um, which, Sabrina? Is that her name? Yes, yes sir. Okay. Uh, I've been listening to this call, and <clears throat> I'm kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm kind of piggybacking on what the last caller said. Uh, I know that gets into a little bit of a, <clears throat> it sounded like a discourse that is a little uncomfortable, but <clears throat> I, I think what I heard her saying is that we uh, may need to be a little bit more aggressive um, in dealing with this problem, I, cause, because I'm a little confused about, I kind of hear you saying that with these, um, with this research, which I, I greatly respect, and Dr. Welsing is a great, um, someone that I greatly admire um, and has, has helped me to understand quite a bit. Uh, but on the same hand, I say I see a intellect, an intellectual discussion that we could be having for a very, very long time. And, and, I, and I get a little confused about, is this, are these discussions to help us to navigate the system or is it to help us in, you know, put it into the system? And I, and I also, I heard a little bit of uh, victim blaming. Um, I, I, I kind of heard you say more about what we could do um, or that we're doing and, and kind of less, less uh, was said about what people that classify themselves as non-white, I'm sorry, as white are doing. And that gets back to what the lady said before about, um, you know, kind of categor categorizing this as, some sort of evil entity, and I'm not sure if I ever heard Dr. Welsing um, conclude where exactly that these that people that classify themselves as white, um, what are their or what is what is their origin? Because there's a th there's a theory that perhaps they may not be from the so-called indigenous people, you know that. Occur, that, are, that they call um, non-white, um, but I, I just see a, a, a bigger, much, much bigger problem that deserves more, uh, more than just us discussing and intellectualizing, you know, what's occurring, because there's people that are dying. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very bad situation. Um, and I'm sorry if I've been a little emotional, a little long-winded, but that's all that I had. Okay, thanks for your, your questions and comments. 
Um, yeah, I want to. I'm glad you brought up this um, notion of victim blaming. Um, we squarely place the blame on the white supremacists for everything that is messed up in this system, which they dominate and control. It is their fault. All of the messed up behavior that we uh, inject upon and project upon ourselves and each other as non-white victims, we blame squarely, 100%, the white supremacists. Okay, next step, problem resolution. We cannot expect that those who caused all of our uh, mishaps, all of our messed up behavior, to stop given that they connected with their genetic survival. And plus, even if, they, if, even if we didn't quite come to that conclusion, we have centuries worth of experience data that indicates they're not going to stop. So we blame them, the white supremacists, but in terms of solutions, squarely the responsibility for eliminating the system of white supremacy rests on us, meaning those who are classified as non-white, because we're clear that those who classify themselves as white are not going to stop. Why would they? I mean, if you, if you understand the system and follow the logic, they're not going to stop. So um, when we talk about black people and other people who are classified as non-white taking charge of their own behavior, that is empowerment and that is not victim blaming, that is taking matters into our hands and controlling that which we can control, which will have the effect of eliminating the system. So, no, I'm not, um, and, and those of us who are coming from that position are not blaming other victims for uh, our problems. This is the, the system of white supremacy. So I, I just wanted to clarify that. And in terms of intellectualizing, well, we're, we're talking, we're having discussions, we're exchanging ideas. Um, I mean, if you want to, you know, get in the streets and and use your your body or some weapons to do something to to someone, then I hope you've thought it out carefully. Um, you know, think 360 degrees, what's going to happen if this happens, what's going to happen to this person, what's going to happen to that person, what are the consequences of that, etc. I mean, you have free will to do um, whatever you want. So if um, discussing and strategizing and using ideas and words and behavioral changes um, don't, don't do it for you, um, then... Uh, by all means, do what's what's meaningful to you. Hopefully, you'll consider whether it's um, well thought out and 
constructive and will um, have you arrive at the at the desired goal objective, um, hopefully, um, and and not imperil others, um, other victims, particularly. Um, Hello. Yes. I, I I don't I I don't mean to interrupt you, but I I didn't mean it. I think you may have misunderstood what my um, point. I, I I didn't mean. Um, I, I just meant that we. It appears that we are just kind of like babysitting this problem, and we're we're saying that um, we want this system to end, and but yet we're dealing with an opponent that is very very aggressive and and non wielding. Um, I, I, I mean, um, re, you know, refuses to give up, and you know, just very persistent. And I'm, I, I find I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not. That does not automatically um, say that I'm, I'm, I'm promoting violence. I'm just saying that I think I, I, I would like to see our intellectual approach be a little bit more aggressive. And, and even, I guess you could say, violence does not always have to be, like, in the form of physical. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just see us babysitting this problem. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm just like the lady that called before that I think we may need to re, um, reassess how we perceive this problem. Based on what it what's what's occurring, you know the the net effect of of, of of what it's what's happening to us is 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 black people or people that are not you know non non white people we're being slaughtered. It's it's genocide. Sir, I just wanted to ask um, a question real quick so I can be clear. When you say aggressive, like what do you mean exactly? What does that mean when you say aggressive? That's a very good question. Um, I think maybe reassessing who exactly we are dealing with and then um, because like um, I think if we and and I agree with Sabrina that I you know to say something is evil could, is, is subjective, uh, but I just think that um, just may, maybe reassessing the, our opponent, so to speak, and, and, and using different tactics uh, to, you know, I understand the, the codification, but like I was saying, I want to make sure that that is not just some way of, or that's not a way of um, better navigating the system of racism, white supremacy, and not necessarily putting an end to it. And, and I just had a, another quick comment. Um, I just I before you get sure just before I, you get to your comment, I'm still not really clear on what you mean by aggressive. I didn't. Uh, it was not really answered for me. If other people are interested, that's great, but I still don't really grasp. But if you want to go ahead and ask your other comment, that is that is acceptable. 
or ask oh, you other okay. questions. So. Um, okay. Well, well I, I guess what I meant by, I'm real quickly, um, not so much codifying the, you know, codification, which I perceive as like, be, you know, better navigating the system of racism, white supremacy. Um, but my question was, I heard Sabrina say, or another comment, I heard Sabrina say that um, we are upholding the system of racism, white supremacy, and that's primarily why it's um, still in existence. I just wanted some clarification that she did say that and and that maybe she has some evidence or some research that would, um, I guess, reinforce that statement. Well, let me re respond again with the, the um, sort of a, a pictorial uh, representation that uh, Dr. Wilson shared, and then I'll, I'll give it some, some further um, explanation. But um, if you picture um, a, sort of a simplistic uh, drawing of a roof, meaning just a, a triangle uh, or a pyramid shape, um, and then two pillars holding it up, one of those, well, the, the roof um, is symbolic of the system of white supremacy. One pillar is white intent to survive genetically. The other pillar that's holding it up on the other side is black self-hatred, lack of black self-respect. So indeed, these are the two pillars that are holding it up, and we, we, we understand that because how is it that a tiny minority can globally control uh, a majority when the when the numbers are are as they are, it's because there's assistance um, by the majority. Um, many of them, it's it's unbeknownst to them. They don't. There's not an understanding of what we're dealing with. And so, yes, when um, somebody plays roles that are despicable. Uh, and that that helps um, prop up the system. The behaviors that we have that are aggressive towards each other, meaning non-white people, that's helping to hold it up. All the killing that we we do of each other, all of the all of the things that proceed, pre, excuse me, precede. Um, violent acts and, and just all, I mean, the whole host of things that we do um, that are not constructive, all of that is helping to prop up the system. And so our point of opportunity and control and power is to grab a hold of our own behavior and change it and make it constructive and no longer hold up this edifice. And something that is being held up by two pillars, when you knock one away, it will fall. And we cannot, will not, 
depend on those who classify themselves as white, who are who have demonstrated significantly that they will do whatever it takes to survive genetically. Biological warfare, chemical warfare, psychological warfare, you know, every every dimension of deception and straight out violence, torture, brutality, savagery, debauchery, everything. Right on. Uh, caller, uh, I believe this is S. Dot. Uh, S. if you had a question for Sabrina Johnson, you should be with us, sir. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Good evening, Sabrina. Good evening, Gus, and the other listeners. Um, I had a, I had a question for you, but before I get to the question, I had a um, brief statement that I, um, I've spoken to Mr. Neely Fuller a number of times on his other show on Talktainment. Um, I was a frequent listener to it, and he and I would speak oftentimes, and it gave me an analysis of racism, white supremacy that I oftentimes share with other victims who might be slightly more confused than I am, and, and I still remain confused. And I think that it might help someone else who may be on the line or maybe listening to a replay of this show um, and just tell me if you agree or you disagree. When I think of racism, white supremacy, the way that I think of it is uh, I use the analogy of a club. Race, those who identify and classify themselves as race, as, as white, uh, are in the VIP section. And all other people who are classified as non-white are in general admission. And anyone who has ever gone to the club knows that those who are in VIP uh, have certain privileges and access that those who are in general admission don't have. And those who are in VIP will never, ever, ever, ever voluntarily give up their access to being on the other side of that velvet rope. And the reason that they have that status and they are looked at in awe is because those who are in general admission have conceded that power to them because anyone who has ever been a plus one to someone who is on the list in the VIP knows that VIP isn't that special. It's the same club. It's the same drinks. It's the same music. The only difference is they're telling you that you don't have access to it. So when I look at those who are beneficiaries and practitioners of racism, white supremacy, they are very skillful at marketing and they are marketing an illusion of them having VIP status. And it is because so many of us are on the other side of the rope in awe of them. And so many of us who are on that other side of the rope whether we want to admit it or not, consciously or subconsciously, desire to be 
in VIP or to be a plus one in VIP. This is the problem and why we can't realistically address the system for what it is. What happens if you're in general admission in a club and you take away the status that you bestow upon those in VIP and you focus on what it is that you need to do as a person in general admission to enjoy yourself and to focus on what your purpose was in coming to that club, what you then tend to notice is that most of the people who are in VIP begin to start looking over the rope and fleeing from the VIP area and wanting to come into general admission because VIP no longer has its status and its acclaim. And I wondered if you thought that would be a more uh, logical tactic for us as victims of racism, white supremacy, to implement in terms of ways of changing our mindset and our behavior uh, towards dealing with racism, white supremacy. That's my uh, analysis, and then I had a question. Okay. Well, well thank you for your, your comments. And I, I, I think I understand um, where, you're, where you're headed with that. And I, I think that that's that's um, that could be effective um, as a as sort of an introductory way to to get people to really kind of open their minds to examining what's going on. I think um, the the limitation would come when we begin to realize that in the system of uh, white supremacy. It's it's not just the same drinks and music um, and or, or the same uh, uh, building uh, decor um, that we're experiencing. the The reality uh, of the situation is that um, in general admission, um, you know, there are a limited number of exits and. They're unlimited of that limited number versus the the, the capacity, um, and of that limited number of exits, many of them are not functioning. So, when somebody from the VIP section wants to have a little fun and yells fire, there's a major problem for those who are in general admission. Now, in a situation where the building is actually on fire, unbeknownst to the uh, general admission folks, the VIP section, it is coated with um, fireproof um, linings, um, and there are oxygen masks um, every three feet in the VIP section. And there's a special... Um, tunnel um, with a special ventilation system that leads to um, a, a safer zone uh, that's part of the design of the VIP section. And so that level of sort of that next level of uh, understanding what the distinctions are being classified as white um, 
or classifying yourself as white versus being classified as non-white under the system, it gets into those, that level of of um, framing um, just how the system works because it's 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 not there's not an an equality um, between the general admission section and the VIP section. It is very distinctively different. And the people in, even if things get dull and boring in uh, the VIP section, they're not, go- and, and they might come down and, and mingle with the, uh, slum it with the, the general admission folks every now and then, certainly. Um, in fact, they do because it makes them feel better about being VIPs after they shower and return to their um, to their section uh, with elevated privileges. Um, but they're not going to just say, you know, I'm tired of being in the VIP section. I think I want to be in the general admission section. And, oh, by the way, I think this VIP section concept is just wrong. So I'm going to... Um, dismantle it and make it all one um, one facility. We, we just don't expect that, that that will happen. And so those are the, the areas that I would um, just examine uh, a little bit more closely as I, as I think about your framework. But I, I really appreciate um, that it is something that's very relatable to uh, a lot of people, and that's that's a it's a great um, great path to be on. Something that can allow people to uh, attach themselves to something that they can relate to, in order to understand something that is either um, a bit complex or something that they're sort of automatically resistant to um, embracing. So, so thank you so much. Uh, Estad, if you have a question, if you could make it concise, because there's somebody else that I wanted to make sure we got in if we have time. Okay. Um, the question is, um, in terms of Dr. Wells, and she oftentimes shared her 10 stops, and I often listened to them and tried to implement them in my day-to-day life, particularly on social media, Um what are some suggestions or some practical ways that you could share with folks to implement some of the 10 stops in their day-to-day lives? Okay. Um, well, it's, well, let me just say, so the, the 10 stops were um, uh, developed by um, Mr. Fuller, and then Dr. Welsing added onto them and, excuse me, and framed them as the, Behavior code for black self and, and group respect, um, but I mean they're they're very straightforward. Um, okay, so for instance, stop gossiping about one another. So if someone comes to you with gossip, you don't you don't have to berate them. You can just very politely share that you know I'm really not interested in. Um, having a conversation um, behind someone's back that I wouldn't have in front of their face. So you can say that to the person who's bringing it to you, and then you can also stop it by not propagating 
whatever um, gossip um, that was. So it it stops there, and you've given the person something to think about. That doesn't mean that necessarily they'll stop cold right then and there, but you've given them something to to think about. Um, the I mean I, I'm they're they're very straightforward um, the these stops. So I, I think that if people are having difficulty with them, uh, it probably means that your your self-respect score is is um, in need of being boosted. And so um, I would say listen to her body of work, read her body of work, and the same with, with Mr. Fuller. Um, and just uh, embrace black. Just uh, embrace black and be calm and think about problem solving and know that you can. I mean, we've been invested with everything that we need in order to, to solve problems. We've got the, the brain. It's a, it's a problem-solving logic instrument. we just got to use it. Right on. Appreciate that. Uh, S. That should be our last caller, a uh, person that dialed in from a blocked number. Uh, did you have a concise question that you wanted to ask uh, Sabrina? You should be with us. Yes, yes, I did. Um, thank you. So when you say changing our behavior, are, are you saying just like a like a, like a malignant kind of neglect of white people. Because, does that make sense to you? Just um, to really, really just bow out of their system, just say, I'm not going to be, I'm done. It's, you know, unless I really have to deal with you, I'm just completely done. Is that what you mean by black self-respect, or what do you mean? I'm, I'm sorry, did you say with respect to our interaction with white people? Yeah, to just, uh, I, I, you know, to just, just that, that malignant type of neglect, that kind that, that kills. Well, I mean, we, we have to interact with people. We have to interact with um, non-white people, and, and, and we have to interact, um, well, unless you're in a very specialized situation, <laughs> um, you probably have to interact with black people, with uh people who classify themselves as white. And so you can be courteous and polite with any and, and everyone. Unless someone aggresses against you, then you, you take a, uh, a defensive posture. But just understand who you're dealing with. And um, with your own self, um, remember who you are, who you really are. You are a person who is equipped with everything that you need to solve problems that um, are placed before you. And so you, you do that, and you know not to um, blame victims or aggress against victims. You might have to take a defensive posture, but for the most part, um, your, your aim should be uh, producing justice. 
which means eliminating the system of white supremacy, which requires self-respect, black self-respect. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I don't want to think we nabbed all of our callers. Uh, I know the election uh, came up. Callers asked about that and Donald Trump, and you gave some uh, thoughts on that. I uh, thought it would be fitting uh, before we wrap up. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Welsing, and she read all the time and consistently encouraged us, uh, reminded us reading is more important than watching television. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times yesterday, uh, and it's titled, Why Donald Trump Has Done Worse in Mostly White States. Uh, and it gives some uh, pretty interesting tidbits. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to try and pick out a couple of the uh, more significant portions uh, and just get your response. kind of be our last thing before we wrap up. Uh, it was a white person who wrote this, uh, Tony Monkovic, uh, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, it reads, Donald Trump has tended to fare worst in states that are mostly white. This doesn't mean he hasn't had great success in appealing to white Republican primary voters. There's no doubt of that. Only that he generally does better in states that have higher percentages of non-whites. They use the term non-white specifically, particularly African-Americans. Mr. Trump's stance on, say, trade and Social Security can strike a chord with voters, but studies have shown that his bigger appeal is as an authoritarian voice of the voiceless. Part of that has been rallying people, particularly those who haven't gone to college, who feel a resentment towards racial, ethnic, and religious others. As Michael Tesler and John Sides wrote for The Monkey Cage, at the Washington Post last week, 50 years of research backs this up. Ethnocentric suspicions of minority groups in general and attitudes about blacks in particular influence whites' opinions about many issues. I'm um, skipping down a little bit. Uh, an appeal to white identity tends to work better in areas where that identity is felt to be under threat. The South, where Mr. Trump was, has performed well, has long been known for racially polarized politics. Race essentially predicts political affiliation there with blacks lining up for Democrats and whites for Republicans. A state like Mississippi, whose population is around 37 percent black, is an obvious example. If even 25 percent of white Mississippians voted for Democrats, the state could tilt blue and perhaps elect the state's first black governor or first black senator since Reconstruction. Uh, that is not the case. Just give it down. The numbers have long been locked in. For example, according to the 2012 Mississippi exit polls, 96 percent of blacks voted for President Obama, but 89 percent of whites voted for Mitt Romney, who won by 55 percent to 44 percent. Uh, political scientists have written about the importance of tipping points in ethnic strife or resentment around the globe. It occurs when one group grows big enough to potentially alter the power hierarchy. Mark Potok, senior fellow from the Southern Poverty Law Center and previous guest on the cows, has said that demographic change in this country is the single most important driver in the growth of hate groups and extremist groups. He wrote last month, 
Donald Trump's demonizing statement about Latinos and Muslims have electrified the radical right, leading to glowing endorsements from white nationalist leaders such as Jared Taylor and former Klansman David Duke. Mr. Trump's anti-immigration language lands with force for people who fear the browning of America. Within three or four decades, several reports have indicated non-Hispanic whites will no longer make up a majority of the United States population. The social psychology researchers Maureen Craig and Jennifer Richson, working at Northwestern, studied whether people could become more politically conservative if they felt a threat to their status in the racial pecking order. Uh, the last tidbit that I'll read, they picked out some correlations, one of those correlations. Uh, one of the bigger predictions of support for Mr. Trump is the belief that affirmative action is taking away jobs from whites and handing them to blacks. Uh, it goes on to give a few more uh, tidbits. Uh, any of this remind you of, of uh, Dr. Welsing's theory or any thoughts on what she might say to a piece like this? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It's, it's classic. And it, you know, it makes sense that um, states um, or areas that where people who classify themselves as white um, are in proximity to those that they classify as non-white would really, you know, jump on the, the bandwagon. It, it makes sense. Um, this, this sense of threat, and by the way, this whole uh, notion of the browning of America and, and quote-unquote minorities are going to be the majority by 2050 and all of that, it is my view, and if you do a little back-of-the-envelope calculation, that that is already the case, that non-white people uh, outnumber um, those who uh, are classify themselves as white um, in this country. And if you think about, like, a state like Montana or Wyoming. I think Wyoming, the state population is like 600,000. That's the size of a, like Washington, D.C. population, which is a, a tiny four-by-four four square <laughs> mile place. Um, but think about those states, Idaho, Wyoming, and, and places like that, and their, their total population is just a, a small and they're mostly um, white um, populations, uh, a small fraction of what we see in most major urban areas, um, whether it's New York, Philly, L.A., Oakland, Houston, uh, you know, on and on. Um, so I, I, it is my view that um, people who classify themselves as white are already in the minority in this country certainly on the globe, but in this country. Um, the other thing that, that, that brings to mind, um, some years ago prior to, this was sometime prior to 2000 because that was the, the, the census was coming up uh, at that time. I went to a, um, a seminar that the um, Census Bureau was having because they were promoting the fact that they were expanding the um, classification um, categories on the on the then upcoming census, and so they talked about um, the the actual you know statutory language 
and their whole decision-making process about what the category should be and what the language should be, etc. Interestingly enough, there is an actual prohibition in the law from any official governmental publication, or at least there was at that time, from using the term non-white. And I actually, um, a few of us went to this, uh, a few Welsing Institute um, students went to this um, seminar, and um, that was one thing that I took from it and uh, shared it later on with Mr. Fuller, and he was, um, he found that quite interesting. And we all concluded that just confirms that's the terminology that we need to use, non-white. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, Trump uh, being popular with um, people who classify themselves as white who have to look at non-whites every day, um, it, just, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Mm-hmm. The concluding paragraph uh, in this report, which is is fascinating, I would encourage folks to uh, check it out. Uh, the concluding paragraph reads, uh, Mark Ambender, writing for the Daily News, argued that part of the response to all this should be empathy for working class whites who have been left behind economically and whose resentment has been exploited politically. Consider the most chilling correlation that Mr. Trump is faring very well where middle-aged whites are dying fastest. Reminded me a lot Mm. of Dr. Welsing as well. (laughs) White genetic uh, Mm. annihilation. Fascinating piece Mm -hmm. uh, for some of the... I couldn't Mm -hmm. even read the whole thing. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a uh, Welsing Institute tomorrow in Washington, D.C., Howard campus. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. We um, are going to march forward with the Crest Welsing Institute. Is it same time, 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern uh, at the Blackburn Center uh, at Howard University? Yes, that's correct. Outstanding. If you are in the D.C. area, uh, come out, share. You all are exchanging views on white supremacy, racism, constructive information. I'm sure a thought or two on Dr. Welsing's theory. Is that the type of thing that's going to be happening tomorrow evening? Yes, yes. We'll continue um, sort of generally in the same format. This will be the first um, actual session since um, her physical absence uh, because in in January it um, occurred very soon, you know, just a couple weeks. The second Thursday of the month occurred just a couple weeks afterwards, and we use that time to, um, to do a community remembrance of her, and then the second Thursday of the month in February fell on the date for her 40-day ascension um, celebration, so the Institute didn't meet um, at at that time per se, and so this will be the first time um, that we are reconvening without her, her physical presence, and we're, we're still kind of pulling things together. One thing I, I did want to mention, um, your listeners may not be aware that, you know, Dr. Welsing had two sisters, 
um, both of whom are, have been in Chicago, one for basically um, all of her life, and then the other had been in um, D.C. and then moved back to Chicago in, uh, in the, I think, the mid-'90s. And you had Mama Lauren Cresslove uh, on your show a, a couple weeks ago. Um, but I don't know if people are aware, but their other sister, um, Barbara Cress Lawrence, um, passed away recently also. Um, so we want to um, give our thoughtful, uh, prayerful strength and, and healing and comfort energies towards um, Mama Lauren as she deals with the loss of both of her sisters in such a very, very short period of time. And so um, as we move forward with the, the Institute, we're still going to be, you know, working out um, um, some matters in terms of, you know, all of the legalities and, and things associated with the estate when, um, when Mama Lauren has the opportunity to, to focus on those issues. Um, but this this monumental body of work, um, we want to position it to be shared um, as widely and broadly uh, as possible. And we're you know working on um, uh, structuring things uh, in accordance with that. And so we really appreciate Cal and you, Brother Gus, for your continued um, committed. Uh, and on-point work in terms of helping people understand what we're dealing with and the effective means to um, direct our own behavior towards uh, eliminating the system of white supremacy and replacing it with justice. So, so thank you so much. Thank you for hanging out with us this evening and just uh, sharing some really precise information, uh, remembrances of, of Dr. Welsing and just continuing appreciating uh, her legacy and more than a half century uh, that she spent really trying, as I said earlier, uh, to heal, educate, inform uh, black people, victims of white supremacy about what this problem is and what we can do to get this solved immediately. Um, definitely we'll be looking, and I'm sure I'm speaking for... Sorry about that. I'm sure I'm speaking uh, not just for myself, but for uh, many listeners uh, who would definitely want to do anything that we could in assisting the Institute uh, continuing. Uh, I know I'm far away miles, uh, but if there's anything that we can do in terms of getting the word out so that people remember, I know we have listeners that are in the uh, D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, uh, that if they are in town and can visit the second Thursday uh, of the month. That's when the Welsing Institute uh, happens. I think she ran it from uh, September through June, uh, my understanding, uh, to go and support. Uh, if there's anything else that we can do uh, to help, uh, just let us know. I'm sure there are uh, legions of folks uh, who would be uh, willing and able to do anything that they can to help uh, carry on the legacy of Dr. Welsing, as you said, to amplify her voice. So just let us know. I'll be happy to uh, announce on the program and let folks know if there are things that they can do uh, to help in that regard. Uh, yes, yes, thank you. And there's a, on Facebook a, a Welsing memorial page you can check um, for updates and things of that nature. Um, there's the Crest Welsing Love Fund, 
um, that's um, available for donations through PayPal. And the payee would be CressWelsingLoveFund at gmail.com. Or donations can be mailed to the Cress Wilson Love Fund, P.O. Box 53, excuse me, P.O. Box 55357, Washington, D.C., 
with that, uh, we will be here on Friday, uh, continuing Chicago native, the uh, Anita McLean and her book, uh, Book of Collected Essays uh, of Foot in Each World. Uh, this is our second study session. Uh, this Friday, uh, we will be going to her uh, notorious essay, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites, uh, which was published in uh, the early 1980s after uh, the mayoral election. Uh, Harold Washington became the first black mayor in Chicago. Uh, and I think for Leonita McLean, all of that, again, voting the election, uh, that seemed to make things very clear uh, for Ms. McLean uh, about what it meant to be white. Uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy. It is an incredible essay. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, dissecting it, uh, hearing it on the program this Friday, but no more broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, second study session, if you missed last week, it's in the archives. You can be all caught up quickly because we've only done the one session. Uh, with that, thanks to all the folks who chimed in. I uh, hope it was a constructive investment of your time and energy this evening. And we will be here again in 48 hours. Uh, again, I encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, we want to make sure that we are clear, lucid, so that we can make phenomenal decisions. Uh, if you are a driver, passenger, pedestrian, you never know when it's going to be Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson that is pulling you over. Uh, and can be causing all sorts of problems for you as a non-white person, including taking your very life. Uh, you do not want to be in that situation where you are inebriated, uh, not clear thinking. Uh, definitely keep that in mind at all times, in all places, making sure our behavior reflects our understanding at some level that we are indeed under a system of white supremacy racism. Uh, with that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.